friends and fellow Buffy lovers, and welcome to our podcast, where we discuss each episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in detail, focusing on digging deep into the themes, metaphors, and foreshadowing. I'm Leah. I'm Sarah. I'm Tabby. And this is Becoming Buffy. guys welcome back to becoming buffy we are on the finale of season two can you guys even believe it it's crazy i honestly like i feel like season one definitely dragged on a little bit for us only because (laughs) like season one for us lasted like months but season two has flown it really has like i can't believe like i feel like we just entered season two this is one of those episodes that you like think about when you start the podcast like this is one of those episodes that you're like this would be such a fun episode to talk about to you know dive into and you know spoiler and spoiler free version there's just it's just such a fun episode i don't know what y'all are on i feel like season two has like been so slow (laughs) for me i feel like the it's felt equally as long as season one because i think months wise of us recording season one felt just about as much as we recorded season two but season two i don't know i just feel like we've been doing this for so long i'm like shouldn't we be in like the middle of season three or like season four by now but it's been awesome like obviously like season two is like my second favorite season so i'm like loving it um and i've seen becoming part two it's probably my the number one episode i've seen like the most out of the whole show and even when I'm like, oh, like, I've seen so much. Okay, well, like, I'll put it on. I love it just the same. Like, I was watching it, and there's so much. I keep saying this in all the episodes. There's so much that happens. But it's like, I feel like the airtime is split pretty well between all the characters. And I feel like so much projects each character into the next season. But yet, there's still so much that's, like, highlighted about Buffy in this episode. So... I just, like Leah said, this is one of those episodes that I kept thinking about when we wanted to do a Buffy podcast, and this is always the episode I think about when I'm, like, trying to have my friends push through until the end of season two. Yeah. No, this is the episode that the entirety of season two is literally building on, and I mean, we've talked about it before, but every single finale of Buffy, with the exception of one, they thought they were being canceled, and so they had to wrap everything up as neatly as possible. It wouldn't have been a happy ending, but it would have been a somewhat satisfactory ending in the sense that like there would have been a full character arc for pretty much every single character or at least, you know, a satisfactory conclusion to some sort of arc, you know. So I think that I I have mixed feelings about this episode in the sense that I absolutely love it. And I'm always like, oh, yeah, I can't wait till we get to like becoming part two to talk about it. And then we get there and I'm going to get overwhelmed by the sheer amount of material to talk about. And I've actually found myself really loving the little like small standalone episodes or even the episodes that um, we don't care about as much because I've seen those less. And so when I watch them and I actually dig Mm -hmm. into them, I'm finding new stuff versus becoming part two. I don't know that there's necessarily anything that we're going to say that is going to be revolutionary or groundbreaking or something that no one's ever said before because becoming part two is definitely an episode that I think people want to analyze and talk about most for good reason. So it's just going to, it's going to be enjoyable to talk about, but it's also kind of like a bear of an episode too. That's a good point because I feel like, like you said, Sarah, like now that you brought it up, 
That's so true because a lot of my favorite episodes that we've recorded have always been ones that I've kind of not really, either not really been excited for or dreaded. And then we end up just like either making fun of it the whole time or I've had some like, it's forced us to really like dissect the theme of it. And then we end up having good discussions. Like one that pops into my head is um the Dark Age. I am not a huge fan of that episode. I think that there are some good themes to it. And then we ended up talking about so much that I'd never thought about before. And it just like flowed really easily. But I think episodes like this are so monstrous. And I feel like it's a lot of pressure as a podcast to kind of break this down when it's like, it's very yeah. self-explanatory. But there's also so much. And there's going to be a lot of people listening in on these ones because they're fan favorites. So hopefully we do it justice. Um it's kind of terrifying to do, but it's, I don't know. <laughs> it's we need worth to talk it. about it's it. Fine. <laughs> yeah. But I will say one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is when we get to the end of each season, which I mean, obviously has only been twice now, but we finally get to talk about what we've been talking about in the spoiler section, which is the overall theme of each season. The overall theme of season one was acceptance. We saw that with Giles accepting being a watcher. We saw that with Buffy accepting being a slayer. We saw Angel kind of accepting what his new role kind of looked like. We saw both Xander and Willow accepting Buffy being a, a, a vampire slayer. Oh my gosh, y'all. Um, and just kind of them accepting the whole world being different and changed but this season it is all about which is the most obvious one is becoming Buffy becoming herself becoming everything that a slayer entails um and we really like obviously not only is it the literal name of the ending of the season but we have just been talking about how this whole season you see snippets of Buffy really viewing um slayer as like a job she accepted the fact that she was a slayer in season one but then mm -hmm. in season two she really starts to step into the role of oh i'm not just you know a slayer as my job but it's who i am and we see her make sacrifices over sacrifices this season because she recognizes this isn't just my job this is someone who i have to be um, and we even see that with Kendra. Kendra was a huge catalyst for that. Like, Kendra multiple times tells Buffy, like, you know, this isn't your job. Slayers is who we are. And I think that finally in this episode, especially in that whole speech with Angel at the end, we see Buffy become the Slayer. I agree. And I think we've seen Giles even settle into his Watcher role. I think season one was him accepting the fact that Buffy's going to be a different kind of Slayer and that his um, his role as a Watcher is going to look differently as well. Um, we've seen everybody grow. I mean, I think even we can safely say like Willow doing her first spell is going to be huge moving forward. And I mean, there's just – there are so many things that happen in this episode that are going to stem into season three but also are huge stepping stones for the characters and who they're going to be come and uh, building off of what they have been in the past too or even like cordelia becoming like she's starting to realize that she's not what everyone views her as she's becoming somebody with a conscience she's becoming somebody with courage and someone who stands up for things even like this episode like really really showed how strong she is too like there's so many like there's so much depth and every character in the season of them becoming who they're going to be. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's a huge 
um, stepping stone in the road of adolescence. Um, and so, yeah, I'm excited about it. And before we jump into the episode, I just wanted to give you guys um, our announcement of this Saturday, we're going to be having our spoiler analysis for Becoming Part 1 and 2, and you guys are all invited. It's going to be 11.30 a.m. Pacific Standards Time, which is 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I have to do the math. Um, we hope you guys will join us. It's going to be really good. I've been writing down some questions and some things to talk about, and I'm super excited to talk with you guys in here from you um, in case you haven't uh, been in the loop, you guys are going to be invited to listen to us talk, but you also will have the opportunity to pop on here if you want to and talk with us and you'll end up being on the podcast if that's what you want to do. If not, we have our chat. You can talk with us on there. You can submit questions in our DMs. Um, you can submit it on our email, becomingbuffypodcast at gmail.com, or you can submit it on our Instagram at becomingbuffypodcast. But we hope to see you guys there. It'd be so fun, such a fun way to connect. And if it goes well, maybe this will be something that we can do after each finale. So, all right, let us hop into the episode because we've got a lot to talk about. So season two, episode 22, Becoming Part Two, our last episode in season two. I feel a little sad, but also excited. Written and directed by Joss Whedon, aired May 19th, 1998. So this episode pulled in an audience of 4.2 million households. Isn't that crazy? I just can't even imagine. Joss has this to say about the episode. He said, Becoming part two has the big sword fight at the end, which was something I insisted on having because you need a big sword fight. And so we had the actress really trained beforehand with the stunt coordinator. And really, we don't always have all the time in the world for our big fights, but this was one we knew was going to be special. What was surprising was not how good David was with the sword, which we expected, but how good Sarah was who does a lot of the stuff herself there and has real grace with that, which is beautiful to behold. I've been extremely happy with the cast. I didn't know when we cast any of them how good they were. I knew they were bright and funny and pretty and good and right for the parts, but each and every one of them has just exhibited such extraordinary depth, and now they're all gaining a lot of notoriety from the show, which, of course, is just incredibly gratifying. Which, again, like... <laughs> Every time I listen to Joss talking, it's hard now listening to him speaking with the filter of what we know behind the scenes. And it did sound a little like iffy when he was talking about how they expected David to be good at sword fighting, but not Sarah, which from everything I've heard, I don't understand why that is the case. Because from what I've heard, David is incredibly clumsy and Sarah has like a black belt. So I don't know. It was just it was kind of interesting. I was like, I don't know if he's just saying that because he's a guy versus a girl, but yeah, it was interesting. Um, Christine Sutherland, who plays Joyce, was very stunned by the finale. She said, I read the script in my car. I couldn't wait to read it, and I had picked it up, but then I had to go to this morning voiceover thing. Well, the first free moment I had, I'm sitting in my car, baking without air conditioning, parked somewhere in Hollywood. I just had to find out what happens, and I just sat there and read it. I was in shock. I mean, where she gets on the bus and leaves, I just sobbed in the car. Isn't that so sweet? We love Christine Sutherland. She like sounds like the biggest mm -hmm. fan of the show, and I just love that. 
Marty Noxon talks about what she likes most about the show is the character progression and how the season finale progresses the characters forward and gets you excited for the next season. She says that's one of the things about Joss, one of the reasons I think the show is so good, because he does things with characters, he's willing to take them to places where most average TV writers would stop. This is a franchise. You don't want to alienate your viewers. And guess what? They want to see these radical things happen. We all crave that motion, that sense that things are happening and they're just going to keep moving forward forward. It's very exciting. Next year's senior year, and there are all the paces we get to put them through that come with that and all the questions about who am I going to be and what am I going to be doing? They all get to change. No one is going to remain static. When Joss pitched me the end of the second season, I went, what? You can't do that. (laughs) My first reaction was, you can't do that to our audience. Then I thought, of course you can do that. You've got to give them what you think they don't want because if you fulfill their expectations, it's the old moonlighting thing. Get these two people together and it loses its energy. There's a huge comparison between Giles and Buffy in this episode. I don't know if you guys saw that while you were watching it. You have... um, Giles meeting up with Jenny, even though it's really Drusilla, um, while he's being tortured. And then you have like parallels between what Jenny says to him and what Buffy says to Angel later on. Um, and Giles is able to withstand the torture by Angelus because at that point, Angelus has already done his worst by killing Jenny. Buffy feels the same. She is ready and able to kill Angelus because Angel has already been taken from her, which is why it's so cruel when she is given back Angel, knowing she has to kill him. There is also parallels between Spike and Buffy, too. And we've talked about how there's been parallels between Spike and Buffy this entire season, with um, both of them losing their lovers, essentially, to Angelus, and how both of them were kind of uh, weakened and taken out of the fight a little bit, Buffy emotionally and Spike physically. And the very same episode that they both decide to stand up and fight Angelus um, was, I think I only have eyes for you. Yeah. And then, you know, now they're both teaming up against Angelus. So it's just kind of super rewarding to watch all these like small arcs build and build and build. And I think it's so clever to have Spike teaming up with Buffy because for the, the back half of season two, he didn't really do a whole lot. All right, so we literally start off as if there was a commercial break and then it just like pops right back on. It just, it's so abrupt and it throws me every time with how fast it starts. Um, so two cops hold Buffy at gunpoint, even though she insists she did nothing. The female checks Kendra, announces that she's dead, and the male cop asks about the stairs near the stacks. And from the looks on Buffy's face, it seems she hadn't noticed Xander passed out on the floor. So Snyder, of course, shows up. Why do I find that so very hard to believe that you're, you know, that you didn't do anything? Buffy Summers, if there's trouble, she's behind it. Buffy, you stupid little troll. You have no idea. Was there someone else who called Buffy or called Snyder a troll earlier on in the season? Because I feel like this is like the second time or either that or this name fits like really, really well. I have no idea. I don't think so, but... I remember him being called a troll. I don't know if it's from this episode, but I don't remember someone specifically saying it beforehand. Yeah, I think I'm just thinking of Cordelia saying tiny impotent Nazi from the episode before. (laughs) (laughs) That could be it. Um, And you can kind of see the moment that Buffy makes that decision of, okay, like this is – I have to go. Like I can't. I can't uh, comply with this. There's too much at stake. Um, so she punches the cop, flips him onto the floor. Snyder has the decency to at least like look shocked and it's kind of satisfying. <laughs> Backs up with his hands in the air. 
And this is like, this is uber dramatic. The female cops like radio in while shooting at her blonde, approximately 16 years old. Suspect is very dangerous <laughs> with like the zoom in for dramatic effect. I mean, here's the thing. One, I think that it's really cool that we're seeing Buffy fight cops simply because like, I just like, it puts a very <laughs> realistic feel to it. Sure, because like, she's a slayer. Watching her, and, yeah. yeah, watching her fight demons and vampires, of course, you're like, oh my gosh, she's so strong. But I think it puts a more realistic, like, image in your head of like, oh my gosh, like, she's taking down professionally trained people. Like, that's yeah. impressive. Yeah. Um, well, I think it adds another layer to the whole thing of like, by the end of the episode, she's like wanted by the law on top of everything else. So it just adds another layer of urgency. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think it is a little funny. Like when I first watched it, I was like, they would not be shooting at someone. But then I actually thought about it and I was like, well, they do think she's a murderer. So it makes a little bit more sense. I still think like innocent until proven guilty. Like I don't know if they would immediately fire off shots, but – you know. Especially a 16-year-old. I think when it's a child, too, especially in today's day and age, like it just would not look great for cops if they did that. But All right. So at the hospital, Buffy's got her Marvel Cinematic Universe disguise on, hat and jacket. Nobody's ever going to recognize her. Like the lady clearly said like blonde. So the least Buffy could have done was like tuck her hair into the beanie or something well, so you can't like tell that she's blonde. And the cops know that the first place she would go to is the hospital to check on like either her friends or her victims. You know what I mean? So it's like there would have definitely been like high level security there. Yeah. And she also looks really sus as she's like roaming the halls looking at all the patients charts. Like if she just like sat there and like was looking normal, then she'd probably be less of a She'd stick out less, you know? So Xander stops her. He has a cast on his arm. And then this part is really interesting. So he sees the cops. He grabs Buffy and they hug. And then she says, okay, that was equal parts protecting me and copping a feel, right? And I get the feeling that like her saying that was her kind of like hoping that he would joke back with her, like needing some sort of like lightness or some sort of humor to kind of lighten the moment. And the fact that Xander just like doesn't even crack a smile or or even say anything is highly unusual and is our first clue that something is really, really wrong. So in the hospital room, this is this is sad. This gets me every time seeing Willow like this. And I I think about Joss when he was talking about um I think it was innocence when Willow was in danger in the school hall walking up to Angelus and how he was saying, you know, whenever he wants to scare the audience, he just puts Willow in danger or something. Because you're thinking this is the finale, like, oh, no, like, is Willow going to die? <laughs> you put someone who's, like, really sweet and everyone loves in danger and everyone's, like, putting their hands up, about to fight, about to square up. <laughs> yeah. They're like, all right, <laughs> we got to fight. I will say I completely forgot that Willow, like, got – her in this episode and then he was like it's willow and i like remembered i was like oh shoot like i completely forgot that like willow took a hard hit so for me it was like oh shoot like i forgot this was a plot line that's a smart plot line yeah no it really is given that you know she was trying to do the cure so at this point we're thinking okay well the cure is clearly off the table Xander says the doctor said it was head trauma she can wake up at any time but the longer it lasts the less likely it is Buffy blames herself for letting Willow do the curse. And I was like, Buffy, stop taking on everything. Like, you're doing the best you can. And, you know, like, I mean, I think Buffy did say, hey, Willow, I think you should do it. And it, again, this isn't 
Willow accepted it and did it, and that was like her choice. But I think Buffy tends to take on too much, and I think Buffy's thinking, oh, because I broached it with Willow, like it's my fault, and that's just not the case at all. Also, this this whole scene is very reminiscent of when she was bad, when Xander tells Buffy that something happened to Willow, or if something happens to her, he will kill her. Like we haven't seen Xander this like serious like this since when she was bad. And I think it's really touching. It shows us that Willow holds a very special place in Xander's heart. I agree. Sometimes I forget that Xander is such a good friend to Willow. And so it's like, sometimes I need to see these moments where it's like, you see his care and you see his heart for his friends. Yeah, Xander is actually like a really good, decent guy for most of this episode. Obviously, we all know what I'm thinking of. We'll get there. <laughs> hold it in, Leah. Hold it in. We'll get there. But I, I think that his interactions with Cordelia, his interactions with Buffy, and even with Willow are all like generally really, really good. And it, it's kind of nice to see a more serious side of Xander, you know? Um, Buffy, does Oz know? Xander's like, oh, man, I didn't even think. And he's like, I'll call him. And this moment is sweet because Cordelia enters the room and it's like a legitimately tender moment between Xander and Cordelia. Like – they, they kiss, but it's not like, you know, the passionate, lustful kisses we've seen before. It was a genuine, like, comfort and solace kiss, and they, like, hug. It's just seriously huge, huge growth moment between the two of them. Cordelia, I ran. I think I made it through three counties before I realized nobody was chasing me. Not too brave. See, I disagree with this. I feel like the poor girl probably felt so guilty, but it was like Xander was telling her to run. Everyone was literally – like from what she could see, everyone was getting killed. And so her running was not – I don't think that was being cowardice or not being brave. I think that that was like – that was smart of her and okay to do. And I think – I feel bad that she sat there and was like, I'm not too brave. But the fact that she said that when usually she's the one who like makes ex- – not really makes excuses. Sometimes she can be, but she'll like – kind of voice things as if that's like the end all be all or whatever. And so I think her saying that was very sweet, but also kind of sad to hear. But also like we know Cordelia's character and she is not at all like cowardice or anything. And I mean, she also ran because like her boyfriend told her like run, like go save yourself. And honestly, like if Cordelia hadn't have ran, like she may be in worse shape than Willow. You know, and so it's like I really think that Cordelia running was like smart on her hand and it breaks my heart that she thinks that it was an act of cowardice. Yeah, I think Buffy telling her it was the right thing to do was <laughs> the right thing to do. I think in a lot of ways it would have been better if Xander and Willow and Giles had run as well. But, you know, at the same time, you can't really control that. But. So then they realize Giles is missing. We don't know where he is. Cut to Giles laying face down on the floor. And there is so much that happened at the end of Becoming Part 2. I always forget Giles gets kidnapped. I legitimately do. There's just so many facets. Just like Leah forgets about Willow getting hospitalized. There's So much happens to every single character. You're like, oh, yeah, okay, this is where we're at. Like, Angelus is just, like, very dramatic and also kind of funny in a way, but also terrifyingly funny. So, like, like Giles is laying down on his stomach, comes to, and Angelus is laying across from him on his stomach. Like, hey, Rupert. Like, hey, buddy. Like, we were just having a sleepover. Like, no big deal. I'm not torturing you or anything or going to torture you. He's like, I wasn't sure you're going to wake up. And I, I wrote down, like, the use of Giles' first name, especially by Angelus, is really mm-hmm. unnerving. 
Like, I'm not sure what to make of it. Well, David did such a good job with kind of like what Sarah said. He gives you so many different things to notice in every rewatch. You're like, oh, it's kind of comedic how he's like finding joy in it. And then you see him kind of like be a little bit impressed by Giles by like re- like resisting a lot of it. And then like you see him being really terrifying. And there's so many things that he does in performance wise that I'm just like so like fascinated by. Like him, Angelus, as somebody who's torturing somebody, like if I was being tortured by him, I'd be horrified. But then watching it is really interesting. He's very casual about it. He talks about it like he's like talking about what he's going to eat for lunch, you know? I mean, which, okay, that's probably a bad metaphor because, you know, he could eat Giles for lunch. But, you know, he's just talking very casually. Giles says, what do you want? And I I realized, too, that, like, the last time these two characters saw each other was when Giles went to beat him up after Jenny died. And so, like, Giles is still processing Jenny's death, but now he's literally face-to-face with the guy who murdered Jenny in cold blood and absolutely has no remorse. And that kind of just, like, really hit me a lot during this rewatch. I was like, dang, like, I think especially analyzing the past few episodes and kind of seeing the grief that Giles has gone through, I'm like... Like this, it takes on a whole other deeper and darker meaning when you realize that he's now being tortured by the person that killed the love of his life. Angelus, I want to torture you. I used to love it and it's been a long time. I mean, the last time I tortured someone, they didn't even have chainsaws. Yikes. And he just like saunters past Giles as he says this right up to Akathla with the sword still sticking out of it. And he's like, oh, yeah. A Catholic here. He's an even harder guy to wake up than you are. It's interesting because, again, Joss Whedon is very, very good at inserting important dialogue and important facts that we're going to need to know later into seemingly casual conversations. Like becoming part when, when Kendra was there and Giles comes in and talks about like, oh yeah, in order to, um, complete the ritual, like Angelus is going to have to do a ritual of his own or whatever. And then like, brushes that on by and it's actually a very vital piece for this episode and you you don't even think about it so in the summer's house we hear joyce loudly saying no it's impossible that there's been some terrible mistake there's an officer that's coming down presumably from buffy's room with a picture frame in hand and i didn't even realize it until i thought about it later is they's using that picture to put up like wanted posters and ads and stuff so that people know what buffy looks like and i was like dang like (laughs) I guess that's that's not like a huge like groundbreaking thing, but it just feels very violating like Ted being in Buffy's room, having police officers in Buffy's room. Um, Joyce is actually talking to the same detective that questioned Buffy in Ted. I don't know if you guys noticed that. It's the exact same actor. No, and same I didn't detective. even notice that. I mean, to be fair, I never have really paid attention to the cops in the episode. I'm just kind of always like, eh, they're fillers. Yeah, but it's the same actor, which I think adds a whole other level of gravitas to this episode because it's the guy that didn't believe her about Ted's assault in Ted and like actually suspected that she might be guilty. And so this whole conversation where he's like, your daughter has a history of violence, doesn't she, Miss Summers? You're like, ugh. That that actually makes so much more sense now because – when I was thinking about it, I was like, how does he, he know that she has a history of violence? But that makes sense because if he was already there with Ted, yep. that makes – oh, wow. Thank yep. you, Sarah. And then he you know, tells Joyce that to call if Buffy shows up and says it'd be best if she just comes in, which this sounds incredibly threatening because he's he's alluding to Buffy's a threat, so we need to get her in as fast as possible, but also like if – 
you don't turn Buffy and we're going to come get her ourselves. So Buffy goes to Giles' house looking for him. Whistler comes down from upstairs, which we're like, whoa, hey, gone Whistler. Like we haven't seen, like we've totally forgot about him. It says, um, introduces himself to Buffy and says he's waiting for Buffy because he needs a date to the prom. And Buffy's like, I have had a really bad day, okay? Like, <laughs> I love how fast, understandable. Like, Buffy switches up because it's like we see Buffy very like witty, very on our feet, blah, blah, blah. But like there's something to be said about the way that Buffy reacts when she is like no nonsense. And I love that about her. I love that she's like, listen, I'm all for quips. I'm all for this. But like I have a friend who's in the hospital. I have another one who's in a cast. And then I have another friend who's literally – being tortured right now. Like, I'm not here to By my ex-boyfriend, yeah, you know, yeah, who I might have about, to kill. The world's about to end. You want to make some equips with me? Help me out or get lost. Like, and I love that about her. Yeah. Well, and I think even her being forceful, she's still being, like, fair about it. She's like, if you have any information, I'll be grateful for it. Like, she's telling him, hey, like, I'd be happy if you can help me. But if not, shut up and leave. Like, I have no time for this. And she does this with multiple characters in this episode. And I think it's completely justifiable. And then he says, it wasn't supposed to go down like this. Nobody saw you coming. I figured this for Angel's big day, but I thought he was here to stop a Kathla, not to bring him forth. Then you two made with the smoochies and now he's a creep again. And what are you going to do? What are you prepared to do? Which, okay, again, Buffy is very fair with him. But if I were her, I'd be like, dude, who are you? Why are you here? And you're lecturing me about what I should do, what I'm prepared to do. You know nothing about me. (laughs) I also, okay, I have a question about Whistler. Maybe I'm just like stupid and missed something in the past few episodes. But like, do they ever kind of divulge what kind of demon or anything he is? Like, because even the way he's talking is very like, oh, like we as an A, a group and B as in like, I see things into the future because he's very like, oh, like we didn't see you coming. It's just like I don't know what he is, and I feel like I talking about himself in the third person. We, <laughs> yeah, I like I don't really know anything about him, and I don't know if that's because I have a bad memory or if it's because they literally just didn't talk about him. Well, I think that at the end of the episode, Buffy kind of makes like a comment like, "Oh, are you like um a demon sent from like you know." higher up powers to even the score between good and evil and he's like oh good guess so i think when he's saying we he's meaning like he's the vessel between like the gods or or whoever is sending him yeah he says higher powers which is like really mind-blowing when you think about how like small scale buffy has been up until this point and so then all of a sudden we're like whoa whoa whoa, rewind a minute okay are you saying there are higher powers but it makes sense if buffy's chosen that means someone had to choose her so if there's higher powers out there who have chosen buffy that leads into a whole other host of questions yeah but then it's also like i gotta hate how nonchalantly that's added in because then it's like if i were (laughs) buffy i'd be like back it up a little bit there's higher powers which means why was i chosen can i get unchosen right like right and so i feel like she's a little too casual about this and maybe it's because they didn't feel like they had the time to write in that huge storyline right now which is fair but i i kind of don't like how casually that's just kind of put in there well i think it's casually thrown in there because they were like okay well if there's a third season we can explore all of that you know it is very odd that all of a sudden this guy like this this, I guess, MacGuffin, for lack of a better word, is like thrown in here and we're like, okay, he knows everything and we can just kind of make him the be all for all information and and prophecy and all this other stuff. And we don't have to explain where he came from. You guys just believe that he's, you know, from some higher powers. He does what he's supposed to in these two episodes. 
but it's also like there's a lot of mystery around him. So maybe we will get more answers about him in the future. So Buffy's like, all right, well, whatever I have to, dude. And he's like, well, maybe I should ask, what are you prepared to give up? And Buffy says, you don't have anything useful to tell me, do you? Yeah, like seriously. What are you just some immortal demon sent down to even the score between good and evil? Yeah, that's that's what we were talking about. <laughs> Whistler, wow, um, good guess. <laughs> she says, well, why don't you try getting off your immortal ass and fighting evil once in a while? Because I'm sick and tired of doing it myself. Like, right? Literally. That would be my answer, too. I'd be like, um, okay, since you have all the answers, can you do all the work then? Yeah. you With great information comes great responsibility. Yeah, for real. <laughs> Not just the power aspect of it. I also think it's interesting that this sounds a lot like what Whistler told Angel in the last episode. Like, when he was with him in the alleyway, he was like, who are you going to become? Like, what are you going to do? Like, how how you are right now is just pathetic. Like, you need to get off your butt and do things. And so Buffy saying this to Whistler is kind of in the same vein of that. Like, okay, well, who are you? Like, you go do the work too. Whistler, in the end, you're always by yourself. You're all you've got. That's the point. Gee, thanks, dude. Like, way to like twist it back around to me and not take any responsibility for your own actions here. Buffy, spare me, right? Whistler, the sword isn't going to be enough. You got to be ready. You got to know how to use it. Like, Enough with the cryptic messages here. <laughs> so Buffy leaves and we see her walking through the park. A police car sees her, pulls over. And just as, you know, she's raising her hands to comply, somebody knocks out the cop quite excessively, I might add. Like, really wails on this cop. And it's Spike. Hello, cutie. This is one of the biggest twists, personally, for mm -hmm. me in this episode. And there's a lot of twists in this episode. I love this scene. I think it like they did a good job of kind of disguising that it's Spike. Um, I just think it's a genius storyline. And it's not surprising. Like you're kind of shocked when it first happens and you think about it and you're like, oh, Spike has been like uh, fuming <laughs> for like half the season. This does He's not been seem simmering. Yeah, he does Brought not seem like <laughs> out of character, out of left field at all. I just think this team up is genius. This is one of those scenes that makes me go like Yes. Like, it's just, like, so interesting. And I love that they do this with Spike's character. Like, I love that they give him this, like, kind of twisted idea of, like, why he loves the world and everything. And I think that it's just so, so, so cool. And it makes him such an interesting character because you're like, whoa, like, let's get to know this character. And I like how they're showing the different types of evil vampires. Like, there's a vampire like Angelus who just wants to make the world like hell. And then there's the vampires like Spike who wants to be the hell on Earth. Like, he wants to be the most evil there is. Like, it's just such an interesting way of turning things. And it also just makes each individual vampire so interesting because they all are going to look different. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there are many turning points in this episode. And that's one of the things I love about Buffy is every season you can expect something completely different. Joss, like just like that quote I read from Marty Noxon at the beginning of the episode, she talks about how, you know, Joss doesn't like leaving things the same. And you really see that with each season. It's fresh. It's new. They're not afraid to take the characters somewhere um, new and interesting. They're they don't leave the characters in the same place just because it's working, which I really, really love. I feel like shows will be like, oh, this is working. Don't change anything. And then we're like, okay, 
But we've been like three seasons now, the characters not really growing or changing or going anywhere interesting. So I really love that Buffy's not afraid to shake things up. And Spike is a huge part of that in this at the end of the season, you know? I also love that Buffy's first instinct is to just go and hit Spike. <laughs> she just like punches him and he like grabs her arms and like, he's like, hey, white flag, I quit. And she's like, let me clear things up for you. We're mortal enemies. We don't get timeouts. <laughs> she's like, just in case you forgot, we hate each other. What are you yeah. doing? I think she let me kinda, remind you. I think this this scene is funny to me because I kind of view it initially as Buffy being like, "Do you think I'm dumb? Are you trying to play a game of being like, I'll be on your side?" She's like, "I'm not yes. stupid," and so I think yeah. she's just like, "This is what you're doing. Like, really, you're gonna fake like wanting to team up with me." But you can see the sincerity and the anger and the jealousy and so many emotions going through Spike. Like James Marsters did a great job of being very multidimensional in this scene because you really believe him that he really just wants revenge. And he feels like one of those like – like um one of those characters and or villains that just like would do something based off of like selfish reasons. Oh, like absolutely. like something like this, not like a, oh, I have a master plan, like really thinking about like seven different things. Like he doesn't feel like that, at least right now, who knows? But as of as a character, he definitely feels like he'd be somebody who would be like, I just want my girlfriend back. Like that feels like his character. Yeah. And I think from what we've seen of Spike in this season, he's – And I don't mean this like he's stupid, but he's a simple man. He has like one track mind. He's not a huge – he said this. He's not a huge planner. He didn't have like back in school hard when we first like introduced him. He's not the type of character to like have this huge plan and like implement it and have like, you know, five different layers of things to do. He's like, okay, I'm bored now or I'm impatient. I don't want to wait. I'm just going to go in and do this. And so the fact that he has been stewing about Angelus and was like, my only option at this point is Buffy is I think really big for his character. I think there's another layer here too in the fact that Buffy is willing to team up with, oh, my dog has a squeaky toy. Sorry. (laughs) that Buffy's willing to team up with an evil vampire. Like, it's one thing to team up with a vampire with a soul, but the fact that she's, like, weighing her options and is like, no, you know what? The smartest decision at this point is to actually team up with Spike is another layer of um, gray that I think the show has been, like, teasing with and is now, like, fully delving into, which I actually really love. I think um, it makes a whole other layer of things. And it also kind of just shows, like, Buffy growing up. She's making adult decisions where it's like the world isn't black and white anymore, you know? Like, I think season one, Buffy would have been absolutely, like, no way. I'm not going to team up with an evil vampire. And season two, Buffy is like, it's either that or it's the world dies. So, you know, I kind of got to pick yeah, which one like it is. Yeah, and I like that because it's like, be smart about it. Pick and choose your battles. Like, if you can have help and back up, do it. Um, Spike, I'm talking about your ex-pet. I'm talking about putting him in the bloody ground. (laughs) Buffy, this is my favorite line. This has got to be the lamest trick you guys have ever thought up. (laughs) So funny. She's like, oh, gosh. Like, who else put – she thinks that Angelus and Drew are behind this, too. (laughs) Um, And then Spike, he's got your watcher. Right now, he's probably torturing him. And I think it's interesting because at this point – sorry, again about the dog. (laughs) At this point – 
Spike, he like lowers his hands. His body language is so interesting. James Marsters just really understands, like he embodies how Spike thinks. It's really interesting. He lowers his hands and kind of stands up straighter because he knows he has her attention. It's, I think Spike is really good at reading people. And so he knows like what is going to get Buffy's attention. It's just really interesting. Um, And then he says, I want to stop Angel and he says, I want to save the world. And as he says this, he kind of like rolls his eyes a little bit like, oh, I can't believe I'm saying this. But I like how like ultimately like he like makes this whole speech about how he like wants to get Drew back because like, you know, Angel's all there. And then Buffy just goes like, all my friends are in the hospital this because but you want to fight Angel because your girlfriend's a big hoe. And he like gets all mad. Yeah, I know, right? Well, it's funny because he's like, the truth is, I like this world. You've got dog racing, Manchester United, and you've got people. (laughs) Billions of people walking around like Happy Meals with legs. It's all right here. So it's funny how he says all of that first. And then he says, but then someone comes along with the vision, with a real passion for destruction. And then he gets serious. He's like, Angel could pull it off. And... um. Buffy Buffy looks really annoyed. She's like, okay, fine. You're not down with Angel. Why would you ever come to me? And then his body language is interesting because he stands up, but he doesn't look at Buffy. He looks down. And you can tell he's kind of like really ashamed of this fact. He's like, I want Drew back. I want it like it was before he came. And he says the way she acts around him. And you can tell this is really hard for him to admit to her. And I think he was hoping she would take his first couple of reasons before he gets to that one. And I think that's really telling. All right. So I have a question for you guys. I think I know what your answers are, but I'm just curious. So in Surprise and Innocence, Spike doesn't seem at all to care if the world ends when Drew is assembling the judge. Yet he says he doesn't want the world to end here because he likes it. So which is it? Do you guys think that Spike actually does care about the world? Or do you think that there is something else going on? I'm curious what your thoughts are. I think it's very possible to be a bit of both. I think he's kind of using her and or helping her um, to save the world because I think he does like it. I think he likes having the power in the world. But I also do think that it's also because he can live his life with Drusilla in the world. I think it's the comfortability of the world. I think it's a bit of both. So I think I think what you're talking about or what you're trying to allude to is like at the end, um, which I can't think we'll kind of get there. But like he chooses like not to help Buffy, which I think is more for comedic timing than it is to like actually really think about what they're doing. Because I'm like, okay, well, if you just helped Buffy for like two seconds, then like he'd have the world and Drusilla. So – I don't know. We'll we'll get there, but I think it's possible to be a bit of both. I mean, I agree with Tabby. I think that one, when it was in the beginning of the season, I think it was like he trusted Drusilla, and I think he he really thought that they both were on the same page of what they wanted the world to look like. But I think that it's also like I think the way that Angelus wanted the world to be ruled was a lot different than what he wanted. So I agree with Tabby. I think it's a bit of both. So I come at it from a slightly different angle. Personally, I think that Spike doesn't care about the world. And the reason why is because when um, both Angelus and Spike were – or Angelus and Giles were talking about a Catholic and what Catholic does, it's a essentially a portal to a demon dimension. And it means everybody who's not a demon is going to die in that dimension. So the thing is, is that Spike is going, okay, he opens up a Catholic – 
we're now all going to be in this demon dimension together, but Angelus will still be there. I don't think Spike actually really cares a whole lot whether or not he's in this dimension or in that dimension as long as he has Drew solely and completely to himself. But I think he recognizes there is a chance to actually kill Angel in this dimension. There might not be a chance to kill him in that dimension. He might be stuck with him for forever. We don't know. There's not a lot talked about with that um, in that demon or hell dimension. I think he actually just wants Drew. And I think that that's consistent with what this season has told us. I think that's why he walks away from Buffy once he sees the Catholic has been awakened and you see Angelus like, you know, going to kill her. I think at that point he's going, well, even if he does, we're already going to be gone. Like I have Drusilla. She's gone. Um, I think that he wasn't 100% honest with Buffy. I think he says that he wants Drew, but I don't think he says that Drew is his main motivation. He He understands that Buffy will not trust him if he says he only wants to save Drew. He had to look like he wanted the same thing as Buffy, especially once Buffy says, hey, like, Drew killed Kendra. Why would I want to save her, you know? So I I see it as Spike not being 100% honest. I see it as Spike um, just wanting Drew no matter what. And I think maybe the world is a byproduct of that, um, just because, like, the judge did say that Spike has a lot of humanity, but... For me, I just see it as more of like a selfish thing. So, um, I I think I agree a little bit, but I also think that at least to me, the way I interpret that scene of him leaving Buffy with Angel is it was him choosing Drusilla over the world, but it wasn't a oh well I have Drusilla so screw the world. It was more of like I either save Drusilla now and we both end up going into the to the like demon world together. Or I try and risk it and save Buffy and end up either having Angelus kill me and not be with Drusilla or Drusilla ends up waking up and then teams up with Angelus. So like the way I view it is like him choosing to save Drusilla over saving the world. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, it could quite possibly be he does actually like the world. I mean, Drusilla just takes higher up on his priority list and he's like, hey, be nice to have both. But at the end of the day, I'm going to choose Drusilla over the world. Yeah, I agree with that. So Buffy's like, you're pathetic. She says, I lost a friend tonight. I may lose more. And then they start arguing. He's like, I wasn't in on that raid party. And she says, the whole earth may be sucked into hell and you want to help because your girlfriend's a big hoe. I mean, like, I think I think it's more just like for like comedy. I think if she was an actual good person, Buffy would not call her a hoe. But if I, I think sure. the fact that she kills people and is a vampire, I think calling her a hoe is okay. Yeah. <laughs> I know yeah, Sarah's like, I'm okay with murderers, but I'm above slut shaming. <laughs> right. Well, and I think I have to put in perspective of like, Buffy's thinking, okay, you just killed my friend. Like, I'm gonna, like yeah. I'm, I can call yeah. her On a the hoe. Scheme so of that's things, fair. She's like, I really don't care if your girlfriend's looking sure. up with other men behind your back. Sure. <laughs> she's like, and why would I want to save her? Yeah. No, it's just, it was, I mean, it is really funny. And stuff, but at the same time, you're like, if we break it down and pretend like that Drusilla is not a murderer and not a vampire, we're like, okay, so Spike, if she wants to be with another guy and not you, like that's her prerogative and not yours. But again, it is Drusilla, so yeah. And I, I love this dialogue. I can't fight them both alone, and neither can you. And then Buffy punches him, and Spike looks at her smugly as she says, "I hate you," and he says, "And I'm all you've got." And I think it's funny because he knows her punching him is because she's frustrated that he's right. It's just – it's funny. And then, you know, the cop's moaning and then Buffy's like, all right, talk. And he's like, I I just need to kill this guy real fast. (laughs) 
And she's like, ahem. He's like, oh, right. <laughs> Fra- and his oh, face was gosh. like, ah. So funny. Their dynamic in this episode is so funny because he has somewhat of an innocent arrogance to him, which is a weird combination. But it's like, he's just like, oh, got to get t- take care of this dude. Hold on one second. Completely forgetting. And he's like, instead of being like, no, I'm going to kill her or like being all evil. He's like, oh, okay, sure, whatever. He doesn't really care. He just kind of moves on. Well, I think it's just like, ultimately, he's like, Listen, like, I don't care if I have to follow your stupid moral code as long as I get Drusilla back. <laughs> yeah, and that's what he saw. He was like, oh, okay, this is what I'm sacrificing. I mean, we just we just had this thing where he was talking about how, like, and you've got people. Like, he's, like, thinking about it. Like, he's thinking about your favorite dessert right there. It's just funny. I, I love that we're seeing in the last episode a callback – and a resurgence of the early season two spike. This is school hard spike. This is the spike from Halloween where he's like, well, this is just neat. Like this is the spike that is confident and is back. And I much prefer this. Um, And I love how they both walk away. They don't like take their eyes off each other. They're just like staring as they're walking. Like neither one trusts the other one. So back in Willow's hospital room, Cordelia is so sweet. She asks Xander if he wants coffee. And this whole exchange, he's like, you know, I don't want coffee. Or he's like, I don't want to leave Willow in case she wakes up. And she's like, I'll get it. And like the sweet voice. And then he says, he looks up at her. He says thanks. And they have this precious moment where like he grabs her hand and they smile at one another another and then she leaves like i'm like who are these people what is happening i don't understand like xander's thanking her like and then we have this speech with xander which i'm curious about your guys's thoughts so it starts off very sweet come on will look you don't have a choice here you gotta wake up i need you will i mean how am i gonna pass trig you know and who am i gonna call every night and talk about everything we did all day (laughs) and then like it pans in and he's like you're my best friend You've always – and then it's like all of a sudden Xander becomes self-aware and is like, I love you. And I get the sense that this isn't just a like friendship I love you. I get the sense that Xander's eyes have been opened to the amazingness of Willow and is like, hmm, I think I see you as more than a friend now, which just sucks. What are your guys' thoughts? I don't – I kind of disagree. I think it's supposed to be painted in a way where we – think that that's what he's saying like I'm in love with her now and maybe it's what he might think but I really truly honestly don't believe that he loves her I think that the idea of losing someone you love even like a friend is a lot to bear like I think that's a lot and you just get a rush of emotions and feelings and I kind of think that's what's happening here is that like Xander is picturing a life without Willow his best friend and he's getting all these feelings, and I think he's interpreting it as love. I, hmm. I've seen so many various responses about this scene um, through different Buffy fans, and no one seems to agree. And I think it's kind of a confusing scene, in my opinion. I lean more towards on the side of him not really being in love. I think maybe he is holding on to desperation and that comes off and maybe he thinks he loves her that way. But then it's also like if he does, like, yeah, sure, he has an epiphany moment. But then it's like a second ago, you and Cordy had this like intimate, sweet moment and then you go and you tell Willow you love her. Like, I just, 
I'm just kind of confused by this scene. And I never feel like I land on, like, a strong opinion of mine. Um, and I've never seen it, like, be, a, like, a overall consensus with Buffy fans on what this really means. Yeah, I guess from my vantage point, the way I see it is, like, you know, the camera's panning in as if this is a big reveal. This is a big moment. And then the fact that he's like, you've always, you've always, and like, it's almost like he's, as he's talking about all the things that, you know, Willow's been there for him and done for him. He's realizing that he loves her. But also to the fact that as soon as he says that, Willow's hand twitches and then she says Oz and then Xander just looks like he's happy. He's happy that she's awake, but then he's also like, oh, she didn't say my name. Like she thinks I'm Oz. So I think there's a lot of like, subliminal messages there that he's actually like revealing that he loves her but i agree with you it's it's very vague it could be taken in a couple different ways and then oz i'm here i just love this man so much (laughs) and then xander gets up so oz can sit and oz hey baby and he like grabs her hands and he's like how are you feeling? And she goes, my head feels big. Is it big? And he's like, no, it's head size. It's head size. Such a Oz response. So precious. Then Willow asks if everyone's okay. Again, another fantastic transition to Banshin and Giles being tortured. I just think it's amazing and a total credit to Giles' character. That, and I know this is skipping ahead a little bit, but that he endures all this torture, like, really puts up a yeah. fight. And granted, you know, he is Ripper Giles, so of course he has a little bit of fight in him. But, like, <sighs> even the strongest of people going through torture by vampires, like, that is a hefty fight. And the fact that it wasn't even the torture that broke him. Like, it was literal, like, mind, yeah. like, control, pretty much. What, like, and it really, I think it testifies to, A, like, his character, but also just his love for, like, Buffy and, like, you know, wanting to protect the world, like, bravo. Yeah, no, he's strong. And I think it's a testament to his love of Jenny that he legitimately thought she was there and he believed and trusted her when she was saying that. So, like, I don't fault Giles at all for giving up the information because I think he he truly thought that was Jenny. Like, he experienced it as if she was there. So, like, man was in love he was you could see the grief playing out in his eyes as he sees her and you realize like how much he's actually been holding it all in. It's oh, okay, we'll get there. Um it's inferred that Giles has a couple fingers that are broken. And um Angela is sitting across from him cleaning his glasses. Like, yeah. oh my gosh. And you can mm-hmm. hear his shuddering breath. So Tony had apparently to put himself in an agonizing, as he says, frame of mind. He chopped chili peppers into small bits and would pop them into his mouth before every take of the torture scenes so that Giles would have Hmm. that like agonized, sweaty look. And Hmm. yeah, apparently it worked because I really, I really buy it. The whole shaky breath thing too. Like he's like, my mouth burns. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, the fact that Angelus is impressed about Giles's level of torture is um, saying something. Giles, never better. Angelus, glad to hear it, bends down next to him and grasps his hands out of I, this. I just can't get over their face acting. All you see is their faces and yet you're like in pain just watching it. Now tell me when it hurts. 
So back at Buffy's house, Buffy and Spike have not taken their eyes off each other as they're walking. They're still staring <laughs> at each other. They're like, what you going to do? <laughs> I'll kill you. Yeah. anything. <laughs> yeah. And then Joyce is cracks you up every time. She's like zooming in around and like driving up and she's not even watching where she's going. She's like looking at Buffy as she's like racing up the driveway, which I mean, I understand why. It's just really funny. And she's like, who is this man? Who are you? Are you okay? <laughs> Which is like up until, you know, we all have that switch point where we're like, we understand Joyce until we're like, we don't understand Joyce. Um, <laughs> but like when she walks up and she's like, are you okay? Like, who is this man? Like, she's like, what's going on? Like, tell me, explain to me. I totally, I get it, girl. I mean, I don't really yeah. get it, but it's like that desperation where you're like, I've talked to cops. No one knows where you are. Apparently you're a suspect. Like, I can't even imagine – she handles this a lot better initially than I would as a mom if this was happening to my child. Yeah. And, I mean, she's a mom, so she's going to react that way. I think it would be a lot more concerning if she didn't care. This is like one of those episodes where there's so much going on in, like, not only the whole season and the show, but also this episode that you, like, forget that Joyce is, like, A, alive and, like, still in this episode, but, like, B, doesn't know – the Buffy is like a vampire slayer because everyone else in the episode, yeah, right. Knows. Even like Snyder kind of knows, and so you like you kind of forget like that this is a whole plot line. Yeah, I remember this moment very clearly, being so shocked that it was season two that Joyce figures out that Buffy's a slayer because I feel like every show would stretch that out as long as possible because I mean they have a fantastic foil in Joyce in the sense that like. Her not knowing Buffy's a slayer adds another layer of realism and another layer of like, oh, we don't want Buffy to be able to go out and do this. So we're going to have Joyce be the one that stops her. If Joyce doesn't know she's a slayer, like it adds that. It makes it a lot easier. You know, it's a very um, convenient thing to have, device to have in there. And so I'm, I'm really excited and interested to see season three. Because that's a huge relationship shift. If Joyce knows, like they can't use Joyce in that way as much and so maybe we'll see more growth from Joyce. I'm grateful that she finds out this early on because I think it would be really tiresome to constantly put her in like the same storyline where she's like making Buffy feel bad and telling her she's irresponsible and like blah 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 blah. I think we got just the right amount of that. I think anymore I'd be like, ugh, come on. Just like have her know yeah. and you can have different types of arguments maybe about how dangerous it is. Um, having some consequences or like what, whatever. Like having her mom be put in danger. Like these are all things they could do, you know? And so I think that like we had the right amount and I'm just glad that we're kind of shifting past that whole choice as not no. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Spike, what? Your mom doesn't know? <laughs> and Buffy's look was like shush stop talking <laughs> and then they're like um i'm in a band and he's like she plays the triangles i mean drums <laughs> triangle and what do you do and he's like well i sing but i also think it's funny that like like spike goes along with this because it's like he didn't need to like i really don't think buffy would be like oh my gosh we're not gonna be partners anymore because you didn't go along with my lie like he really honestly could have just stood there or just, like, kind of been, like, she's, you know, a vampire slayer. But, like, he chooses to go along for, like, no reason. And I just think it's so funny to me. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I think that just shows how much he loves Drew because he's like, I'm not going to let anything 
cause Buffy to just back out of this. And he knows he's walking a very fine line. Not only does he like just sit there and let Buffy take it, but he like tries to help her out. (laughs) He just goes the extra mile, which is funny. So then the vamp jumps out. They stake it in front of Joyce. Joyce's reaction is so over the top. It's really funny. And they have this conversation about like, oh, it must be one of Angel's guys. And then Spike's like, he won't get a chance to tattle on us now. And they both look at each other like, yeah, take that, Angel. It's like, they're actually like, hey, we make a good team. And Joyce is like, um, what is happening? What's going on? And then we have, mom, I'm a vampire slayer. So in Willow's hospital room, we just kind of jump back and forth with Willow and Buffy on the phone with each other. Willow asks about Giles, um, to which Buffy says that she got a lucky break that Willow wouldn't believe her if she told her. Cut to probably one of like the funniest scenes. We have Joyce and Spike sitting awkwardly in the living room, and there's not a single word said, but we all have been there. We know. <laughs> just like... The whole dialogue between them where she's just sitting there and she's like, have I seen you before? And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, you had the axe and get the hell away from my daughter. And then she goes, oh, yeah. So do you go to do you work around here? Like completely. Do you live here in town? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He tried to like kill them. (laughs) I know. Right. And I think they picked the awkwardest wicker chair ever for spike to sit in because he looks so uncomfortable as he's sitting in this like super straight chair oh my gosh it's just the funniest thing maybe it's just because the character of spike just looks so out of place in like the summer's living room so um buffy gets Xander on the phone tells him that angel's at the mansion that she's going to be there at daybreak and uh he asks if she needs backup and she says she's covered and you can tell like xander is like trying to keep willow from hearing um, and asks if Buffy thinks that Giles is still alive. Buffy, I do. I just wish he were here to tell me what to do, which I think is a very important part of this episode because it's so important that Buffy has to make all these decisions on her own. And I, I, again, Joss is incredibly smart. Him weaving together all of this stuff. I mean, the fact that like he's, he didn't just have like Giles in the hospital room knocked out. Okay. We can't reach Giles. He actually had Giles like, battling his own inner demons. Like he's being tortured over here. Like they used him being out of commission very effectively. Um, and in a way that caused Buffy to have to make decisions and grow on her own, which I think is just, it's, it's so good. I really love that. Well, I was about to say, I was like, I feel like it's very aptly named becoming, um, and then having the quote unquote father figure and or someone who's supposed to be guiding her along in, and like, teaching her about life, teaching her about being a slayer, all the responsibilities, blah, 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 not be in this episode to like kind of give her advice where she has to make those hard decisions all on her own. Like, or even just like, um, Xander telling her like kick his ass or whatever. Like she's just like, right. Like it was like another nail in the coffin where she was already planning on it anyway, but it's like, she made all those decisions knowing that she had to, and she didn't think about it. Yeah. 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 I think more than any other episode that we've seen yet, Buffy is behind the scenes kind of like moving things along. She's like, all right, Xander, I'm doing this. I mean, obviously she isn't behind the willow spell and stuff, but she's like, all right, let's be here at this time. All right, Spike, we're going to do this. Like she's very proactive. And I, I think like that shows a huge amount of growth. Um, I mean, I'm thinking back in season, uh, was it? Oh yeah. Season one where, you know, 
Buffy was um, barely doing her own research and stuff and was relying on Giles for that. Like, it's just, it's very exciting to see her growing as a character. So Buffy walks in the living room, asks Spike what the deal is, what they're planning on doing. Spike, simple, you let me and Drew skip town. I help you kill Angel. And the way this is shot is interesting because Buffy's on one side of the living room, Spike's on the other, and Joyce is in the background looking between them, which is really important because obviously we're trying to get this dialogue passed between them. But it's also important that Joyce is in the background because she needs to be listening in on it and stuff too. And Joyce is like, Angel's your boyfriend? Like She's like trying to catch up. She's like nowhere in the loop. She has no idea what's going on. Okay, so I have a question. So they talk about how like Drusilla killed Kendra. There's no way that Buffy would have known for certain that it was Drusilla that killed Kendra. And I just like clued in on that this last rewatch. So she knows that Kendra was killed, obviously, by the vampire attack, but she didn't know for a fact that Drusilla was there. So I'm, like, really curious if she was just, like, making a leap or a guess. Or do you have something? Go ahead, Tubbs. I I always kind of think that it's either implied or I view it in a way of um, any other, quote-unquote, stupid, unseasoned vampire would feed on Kendra. And so I think the fact that Kendra was not fed on and or slit at the throat was much more of a predatory and methodical and strategic killing, which could only be done by either Angelus, who was with her, or Drusilla. Yeah, and Spike said I wasn't part of Mm -hmm. that raid, so it had to be Drusilla. That's interesting. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. And also, who, who trained Drusilla to be a killer? Angelus. And we know Angelus is not above doing stuff like that, aka Jenny. Yeah, that's true. I know. Like that whole thought. Yeah. The fact that she didn't drink from her, that she didn't in her regular human mm-hmm. face is, is still just like blows my mind when I think about it. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yep. The Spike's all just, he's all impressed. Drew back to Slayer? She didn't tell me. He like looks over at Joyce like, woo, like rejoice with me. Like <laughs> this dude, like I know. he forgets where he's at sometimes. It's so funny. It's so funny because you have like, Buffy, who's angry at the fact that he's happy. You have uh, Joyce, who's all confused and is asking if she dusts just like the other guy. And then you have, like, Spike, who's, like, impressed. And it's just, it's so, like, there's so many range of emotions going on. Like, you don't know who to watch. Yeah, it's really, everybody, every actor just really brought their A game. I mean, when don't they? But it just, it worked really well and it gelled. Um. Buffy, I can't believe I invited you into my house. And Joyce is like, so you didn't kill that girl? And Buffy's like, of course not, mom. Like, what What kind of – even Spike looks kind of irritated by the question, like, can we keep on topic here? And Joyce, yeah, did she explode like that man on the porch? Buffy, she was a slayer mom. Joyce, like what you are. So, okay, I – I, I see things from everybody's perspectives in this scene and in the scene that comes next. I understand Buffy's frustration. It's literally life and death. She's trying to figure things out with Spike. Every minute the Spike is away from the mansion, Giles is being tortured. Perhaps Spike could do something about that, you know? Um, but I also like feel for Joyce because she doesn't know about all of this stuff. She's just learning about it. She's trying to catch up. And so she's trying to put together pieces of information together. And yeah, she should be sensitive towards her daughter. But also like this is a huge thing to suddenly like a bomb to just be dropped on. And I think that there could be a little bit more patience and maybe like a 30 second summary that Buffy could give her and say, okay, mom, like write down your questions later. Like some acknowledgement that, yeah, this is really hard for Joyce I too. I don't you know? really start to fault Joyce until she like, until Spike leaves and she's like, 
you're not allowed to leave the house, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Like, right now, I understand. I completely get why she's so, like, what's going on? Like, I, I don't understand, blah, 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 blah. But it's, like, afterward that I'm kind of like, okay, like, do you really think that this is the best way to handle it? Even if Buffy was lying and she really did, like, kill that girl and all that, you really think the best course of action would be to ban her from the house? Like, maybe not. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say the same thing. I was like, I 100% get her and understand her reaction and her reasoning up until, yeah, like she throws like the the glass at the sink and like scares her and then starts getting a lot more like demanding of her. Um, That's where I'm like, hey, girl, you need to listen. You need to understand where she's coming from. So he kind of like leads Buffy away. He's like, all right, we need to get away from Joyce so we can get through this. The deal is him and Drew for Angel. Joyce, honey, are you sure you're a vampire slayer? Which is this the classic coming out scene too. This is, you know, a child (laughs) telling their parents, hey, I'm gay. And their parent being like, are you sure? Honey, have you tried not being a slayer? Spike promises to take her out of the country. You'll never hear from us again. I bloody well hope. (laughs) He's so done with Sunnydale. And she tells Spike to get back to the mansion to back her up when she makes her move, says if Giles dies, she dies. Um, Yeah, Joyce, because you didn't have a strong father figure. I think it's so interesting in this scenario as Buffy's slayer abilities are very traditionally masculine with the super strength and abilities and leadership and except. You know, all that stuff. Joyce is telling her that she's exhibiting these masculine qualities. I put that in quotations Hmm. because she didn't have a strong father figure. And also kind of like chuckled a little bit the fact that Joyce is throwing subtle shade at Hank, (laughs) 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 which is interesting because Buffy like has seemed to have a good relationship with Hank, although we haven't seen him since when she was bad. And he seemed to have been pretty involved in her life up until um, like, I guess, fairly recently. But it's just like. It's interesting how, like, again, it's the whole they're being subversive of the trope. You obviously have the coming out trope. Um, but then you also have Buffy over here exhibiting masculine qualities, which is another layer of it. And, Bu- and Joyce being like, ah, you didn't have a strong father figure. And that's why you're displaying these these qualities. So it's very layered and it's very, very well done. And it's so well done that you have, you know, People who are coming out can relate to it. You have kids that suffered, you know, um, emotional abuse at home or even physical abuse. And you have all, many layers of people who can look at this, um, this scene and just deeply relate with it on, you know, many levels. Buffy, it's just fate, mom. I'm the slayer. Accept it. And this whole, this whole next few moments is really interesting. Joyce kind of like breathes in, like, Okay, I can't. This is too heavy. I can't understand this. We should call the police. Like, she just can't understand that. But police equals safe, equals normal, equals leadership, equals something I can hold on to and grasp. They'll know what to do. Like, let's just talk to them. And so she, like, moves into the foyer at this point, at this point. And it's such a, like, very visual representation of Joyce trying to distance herself from the whole thing because she just can't grasp what Buffy's telling her. Or even when um, Buffy's telling her the absolute truth, she's still trying to like repress. Yeah, mm-hmm, be like, okay, yes. well then we'll just go to somebody else and figure it out. It's kind of like the whole like, let's put you in therapy 
when you're yes. showing signs of, you know, whatever it is the parents don't approve of. Um, and that's just kind of how I view this too. It's like, okay, let's go to the police. And I always kind of view it as like, right, we're going to go to therapy. We're going to go fix this rehab or like whatever it is parents try to do to quote unquote mm. fix their child. Yeah. That's a really good point, Tabby. Joyce says, now that we know you're innocent and Bobby's like, you thought I was guilty. And Joyce is like, no, I didn't think that's just now that we have proof, which is AKA now that Joyce has talked to Buffy and she doesn't think that she's guilty. I think Joyce really did believe that Buffy had killed someone because she knows what Buffy's capable of, or at least believed it possible. Every time Buffy refutes what her mom says, or like just kind of says straight facts, Joyce is like, I don't accept this and moves to a different part of the house. Like, it's just super interesting. Joyce moves into the kitchen now and Joyce is like, I'm sure they will understand Buffy. Get them involved and you'll get them killed. Like you're not thinking this through. Joyce, well, you're not going to hurt them, are you? Buffy, I'm a slayer, not a postal worker. And then from the moment that Buffy slams down the phone's receiver button and says, cops can't find demons, I have to, Joyce's whole demeanor, facial expression, everything changes from like bewilderment and like treating Buffy like, oh, they're there, you poor, simple little child to just straight out anger. She says, do what, Buffy, what is happening? And this this part makes me angry because Buffy's been explaining herself at least somewhat, maybe not like fully, but she is explaining herself and Joyce is refusing to listen. It could quite possibly be that Buffy didn't explain herself fully to her mom initially because she was like, you're just not going to believe me anyway and I don't have time for this, you know? Then, you know, we have the whole throwing the drink. Don't you talk to me that way. You don't get to dump something like this on me and pretend it's nothing, which I don't think Buffy's pretending this is nothing. I think Joyce is pretending this is nothing. Um, I'm sorry, mom, but I don't have time for this. No, I am tired of I don't have time or you wouldn't understand. I'm your mother and you will make time to explain yourself. Okay, question. Do you think that being Buffy's mom entitles her to an explanation? Because I've kind of like gone back and forth with this. Okay, here's the thing. I think that since Joyce doesn't really know the severity of this, considering the fact that she just saw her stake and kill someone and there's cops looking after her and all the fights and everything that she's been getting into. I really do think that Joyce kind of does feel like she's entitled to an answer. And I think that if Buffy wasn't going to save the world, I think that it would be fair that Buffy would sit down and explain to her mom. However, when you look at it through Buffy's eyes, Joyce kind of gets overruled. Like, it's either save the world or sit here and have a talk with your mom. Like, of course, Buffy chose to go save the world, but I don't think that it is out of the question that Joyce wants a conversation. But I think that her reaction leading up to it was extreme. I couldn't have said it better. That's literally what I was thinking. Probably. Yeah. 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 I think it is so hard to be objective in this moment. Because we as the viewer are privileged enough to see all sides of the story. We understand yeah. exactly how much Joyce knows, exactly how much Buffy mm-hmm. knows. And so we're like, gosh, Joyce, leave her alone. She has to go kill her boyfriend. Like we see what Buffy has to deal with. Joyce doesn't. And so it's very hard. I don't think either one of them is reacting perfectly in this moment. And I don't think they're supposed to. I don't think Joss wrote them to to have one side reacting perfectly or the other. But I think that we're seeing the fruition of Joyce's repressing 
for seasons now, I guess for years in Buffy's life, um, coming back to bite her in the butt where Buffy just doesn't want to even open up to her because she knows her mom's just going to say, oh, you know, I don't accept that or it's because of this or you need help. And so seeing how Joyce is reacting, you're kind of like, well, I mean, I understand why Buffy is feeling the way that she is. I think for Joyce to say, I am your mother and you will make time to explain yourself is a hard it's a hard thing because I don't agree with the context that Joyce is using it. I think um, as a parent, like we should teach our children to respect us because we are the authority in their lives. But we have to, we have a responsibility to make sure that we as the parents are deserving of that respect and are respecting our children right back, are listening to them, are hearing them out. Um, and I don't see Joyce necessarily doing that with Buffy. At this point, Buffy is 17. She is less than a year away from turning 18. She is very, she's not an adult yet. She's very close to being an adult. At this point, if there hasn't been a foundation of respect and trust built up, then there's not much Joyce can do. And so I think Buffy's response is valid. Um, and fair in a lot of ways. I don't know. I go back and forth. Again, I love the way Joss writes because it is very nuanced. And so you can sit here and wrestle with it, um, which I think is just always good. But yeah, I don't know. As my perspective has changed a lot since becoming a mother too. Like I think our knee-jerk reaction is to be like, I'm the mom. So like, boom, you should tell me everything. And it's like, well, but if what you're saying or how you're going to react is harmful to your child, then that's not always the most helpful thing. I just, I feel like if my child was being like, I have to go save the world and I saw them kill like a vampire, conjure up this whole plan, like and like washing blood out of my child's clothing. Whether or not she was lying, I'd be like, you know what? Come back tomorrow morning. We're gonna talk about it and we're gonna hash everything out. Clearly, first of all, we're all all meeting them too. Not us. I mean, I was angry watching this the first time too. But they're like both so heated in the moment. There's going to be no listening on either side. It's only going to be angry. Like I I heard it once. It's like if you go into an argument where you just want to prove your point, you both lose. You have to go on being like, you know what? I want to be heard and I want to hear them. And neither of that was happening. I think it was a little harder for Buffy only because she was literally in the middle of a crisis. Um, I think she would have been a little bit more keen to sit there and explain a little bit more if it wasn't like the actual world world was dying. Um, but if that was my child, I'd be like, you know what? I can't control you. Do what you need to do tonight. Come back and then we're going to talk about it tomorrow. Yeah, that's so wise, Tabs, but it's not what happened. So, Okay, moving on. Buffy, open your eyes, Mom. What do you think has been going on for the past two years? The fights, the weird occurrences. How many times have you washed blood out of my clothing and you still haven't figured it out? Joyce, well, it stops now. Buffy, no, it doesn't stop. It never stops. Do you think I chose to be like this? Do you have any idea how lonely it is? How dangerous? I would love to be upstairs watching TV or gossiping about boys or God even studying, but I have to save the world again. I feel like this is a rare moment where we get to actually like hear Buffy verbalize what she's thinking. Sarah Michelle Gellar does an amazing job of emoting with Buffy. Buffy conveys so much with just her face. And I think Joss sometimes relies on that to the point where we don't like 
audibly hear what Buffy is wrestling through and what she's thinking. Like a lot of it is just kind of shown. And so it's oddly heartbreaking and refreshing to hear Buffy verbalize what we've seen her experience for the entire season. I think this part is kind of hard to watch after she says all that and is vulnerable. And then Joyce kind of like yeah, makes her feel right? crazy and is like, we need to take you somewhere or something. I don't remember what she says. Oh, gosh. And then Joyce yeah. – or not Joyce. Buffy's like, I'm not crazy. And I just feel for her. I'm like, man, could you imagine like having that like emotional, vulnerable speech to your mom, but being like, I have been so lonely. This is hard to do. I'd rather be doing all the things that you think I'm doing. I'd rather have that reputation. Like we talk about this all the time, especially in season one, early season two, you tend to see a lot of people kind of viewing Buffy as this weak um, feminine, irresponsible. irresponsible, ditzy blonde girl that we've all seen in television, especially in the 90s and way earlier before that. There was a huge trope with blonde girls being stupid and dumb, like which I think is a dumb stereotype. I think it's so stupid. Um, dang it. I forgot what I was going to say at the end. So I want to finish that up for me. Yeah, I think what you're trying to say is, you know, I, Joyce herself told Buffy and Bad Eggs, I just wish you would learn some responsibility. Or she said – Gosh, like just wait till you ha- like get your own yeah. job and stuff. And so Joyce, I think, has recognized that Buffy's shut her out a lot, but then she's also like not really like asked a lot of questions or even just like listened to Buffy, you know? So I also kind of see it as being very prideful from Joyce's side too, because I think it's like her yes. realizing she doesn't realize – her realizing she doesn't know her daughter. And so I think she gets yes. angry by that because she can't control her and she doesn't understand her and she doesn't know her because she has had this – this is where I was going. She's had this idea of her and Buffy's <laughs> like, I'd much rather be that person. That would be simpler. I totally agree. And I was just going to say that this moment right here, this just screams control. And that's the last ditch effort. You won't listen to reason. I use that in quotes. Joyce is like, you won't listen to reason. I've tried like talking to you about it, you know, all this other stuff. So I'm going to now force you. It is just not, it's not good parenting. It's not how it's supposed to be done. I mean, it's very hard to watch, especially when you think about like, you know, the end of innocence when they're sitting on the couch together, you know, they have a very sweet relationship in a lot of ways, but there's been this huge giant thing hanging over both their heads that they just haven't been able to talk about. And now it's all kind of dredging up all everything that Joyce has repressed. Um, I think it's hard too, because we haven't seen, and I can't really judge Joyce on this because it's like, has Joyce really asked her what's wrong? Or she kind of just ignored because she's scared to talk about it. And so mm-hmm. when given the opportunity where Buffy's telling her this is what's happening, especially in innocence, if my child was like, I'll let it burn, talking about the candle, yeah. I'd be Are you okay? very <laughs> concerned. You know, and like you don't want to like push stuff out of your child, but it's like if you've seen them kind of go through it silently for months, and I know that she's noticed Buffy just kind of really going through it and or having a hard time, I feel like that would be really concerning and I'd want to be like, hey, like, is there anything I can help you with what's going on type of thing? Um, I really feel like there are times where it's okay to ask that because um, sometimes you don't really want to pry, especially if you're being a parent and you kind of want to give them a little bit of space, but it feels like she's not wanted to face the music when it comes to a lot of things that are alarming about Buffy. And then here's Buffy explaining it and she's calling him crazy and trying to gain control over her. And I think it's just really sad. Buffy never wavers. She just stares right at Joyce. But I think it's telling that she leaves the door open as she walks out. And I've always seen that as that's Buffy not closing the door on the relationship. That's Buffy leaving it open as, hey, I'm not the one. 
that's causing the rift in this relationship. It's you. And so I'm leaving it open, meaning you are free to pursue me if you want. And I'm also leaving it open if if I'm able to come back, I will. I feel like if Buffy had shut the door, it would have spoken volumes. So I just thought that was a really interesting decision. I think it's hard because, I mean, we've talked about this before on the podcast where especially like all of us really think that Joyce is like a great mom. And I know that's un- weirdly unpopular opinion amongst people. Um, and it's hard because when I watch the scene, obviously I don't think that this was the right way to go as far as her parenting. But then I also think about it and I'm like, she, she was in a high pressure situation. Not that the ever justifies putting your hands on your child, but like she was in a high pressure situation and she thinks that Buffy, well, Buffy is risking her life. So she, now she's also worried for Buffy's life. And so it's like, of course, Joyce didn't react the right way. Of course, banning Buffy from the house wasn't okay. But I understand. Like, I don't think this scene makes Joyce a bad mom. I think it just makes her, like, flawed and human, you know? Do you think Joyce actually believed Buffy when she was telling her that she's going to go save the world? Because from one, from my perspective, when I'm looking at this, Joyce is, like, not even listening to what Buffy's saying. And it's just like, you're crazy. I think it's more of, like, Joyce doesn't want Buffy to leave because it means that she can't control her. That means that Buffy thinks Buffy's going to go and do what Buffy's going to do. And Joyce is over here like, let's get you help. Let's get you to the police. I think it's um, – I don't know that it's necessarily that Joyce actually believes that she's going to go save the world, you know? I don't know if it's that she thinks that Buffy's going to go save the world. But I think that either way, she thinks that Buffy's in danger. Whether that is something that she's doing mm, that is harming yeah. her, whether that's actually her saving yeah. the world, whether that's gotcha. her involvement in something shady, whatever it is, I think that she thinks Buffy's in trouble and that Buffy is doing something harmful. And I think that that would make any rational parent concerned for the safety of their child. Should they react like that? No. But I think that her reaction makes sense. I think it's a lot to swallow that your daughter fights, quote unquote, crime and or like really dangerous things every single night. Um, I think that was easy for her to understand because kind of like what Buffy was saying, like she's seen a lot and dismissed a lot over the past couple of years. But I think it's a lot to just kind of expect that it's up to the degree of what Buffy has to go through that night. So I think her saying like, I have to go save the world. I agree with kind of what Leah said, where she's like, I know something dangerous and but I, I don't even think she knows whether or not it's like fully moral on Buffy's side. She doesn't know the details yet. So I think her thinking she has to go save the world, she has no idea what that really means. And then also too, okay, so let's be fair. Like not that Buffy didn't choose – Buffy obviously if she had chosen a moment to tell her mom that she was a slayer wouldn't have been this moment. But having Spike there didn't exactly help things because let's let's face it, Spike is – his whole persona is not necessarily – it doesn't scream good boy. It screams bad boy. <laughs> and so for Joyce, it's like there's this strange dude in my house and then him and my daughter both like killed this guy. He exploded. So like that didn't help either. And I mean that's nobody's fault that it ended up that way. So to Joyce's credit, she does look heartbroken at the very end um, that they had the fight And I hope that means that there will be reconciliation later on. I think that's one of the things that I noted in this episode that I hadn't seen 
that I hadn't caught myself seeing before was that Joyce looked immediately regretful of how she acted. Yes. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you could see it on her face, just that look of like, I should have handled that better. Yes. And I love that because it's like, that's that's part of being a parent. Not, not that I would know, but like, that's part of being a parent. <laughs> that's part of being human is like, you're making mistakes and you're learning and you're growing. And I think that we're really going to start to know Joyce's character later on in the show by how she reacts to this. Yeah. It was very similar to the face she made at the end of the episode too. It's just just regret, full of regret. And that's how you know you're a good mom. If Joyce had been over there like fuming and huffing and puffing like, you know, oh, I, I was in the right. How dare she? It was an immediate, oh, I messed. I could have handled that better. I See, I kind of view it a little bit differently. I think that she feels bad, but I think it's more of coming from her not wanting to believe it. And so she made a huge threat thinking Buffy was going to be like, you're right and stay home. But I think the fact that she was like, I have to save the world. I have to risk my life. And she didn't want to hear that. And so her walking out after she made a massive threat and had to actually go through with it, I think she was like, oh, like this means all this is true. This means that I've been awful. Mm. This means that like so many things. So I think it was like more than just her feeling bad about what she said. I think it was just like, oh, she decided to leave. She had to leave because this Mm. is something I don't want it to be. All right, moving on. So in the hospital, Cordelia mentions that she wishes they could help, you know, without dying. Xander mentions he isn't sure how when Willow, with that same look she had on in the library and becoming part one, that look of like, this is everything that I've always wanted, everything I've been waiting for. She mentions she wants to try again. Oz is completely out of the loop. He's like, try what? Like, what have I missed? Will explains that they never were able to finish the curse, that maybe they can restore Angel's soul. Xander, I don't like it. You're talking about messing with powerful magic and you're weak. So once again, Xander has an ulterior motive. Is it interior or ulterior? I can never remember. It's ulterior. But I actually, I kind of want to disagree. I wrote in my notes that I think that this is the one time that I genuinely believe that Xander is actually concerned for her well-being and not just thinking of himself. See, and I agree with that. I agree that it can be both. And I think that's the rub with Xander. I think usually it is both. Like, he usually has a valid point. And it's just always hard to tell with him because it's like, okay, what, what kind of motivation do you have? But I do genuinely think he is concerned about Willow. So I agree with you on that. Um, Willow, I'm okay. Xander, you don't look okay, does she? Cordelia, you should listen to him. The hair, it's so flat. <laughs> and the lips. <laughs> Xander, could we stay on topic here, honey? This is the first time that he's corrected her and it sounded like like kind. And he called her by a pet name. Like I feel like this episode, with the exception of him telling Willow he loves her, like he's been really kind to Cordelia. And I'm like, what is going on? Jeez, the bar is all the way on the floor for this. <laughs> he he actually was nice to his girlfriend this episode, besides the fact that he told another girl he loved her. <laughs> I know. I Well, I think it's also because it's like, it's one of those, oh, me and my boyfriend or my girlfriend just had a fight. And then it's like the right after the fight when you're like really nice to each other. Because you're just like, you know, you're on like thin ice. Not thin ice, but yeah. you know, you're just like, hey, yeah. like... Yeah, we're still mad. Yeah, yeah, I love you. And so, like, I feel like this is one of those moments where it's like everyone thought that everyone was going to die. 
And so they're all just like really oh, nice no. to each other right now. Oh no, that's <laughs> true. So like, like Cordy being all like, like not that she, this isn't in her heart, but it's like her being really sweet about like, like um coffee, and the then coffee, Xander being yeah. really sweet to her. Like you know, it's like everyone's just like very like. We all just really love each other right now. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. (laughs) That's hilarious. Willow puts on her resolve face, which is very cute. You've seen it before. You know what it means. Oz is confused, as confused as Oz can look. Okay, I pretty much missed out on some stuff, didn't I? Because this is all making the kind of sense that's not. (laughs) Willow tells him to get her things from the library with Cordelia, that she'll fill him in. Oz trusts her. Willow doesn't like explain anything. Oz just like glances one at once at Xander and then goes, sure, kisses Willow's hand and then leaves. Like what that a good is guy. Literally the sexiest thing that a man can do. Just be like, okay. Right? <laughs> right? Including the hand kissing man. I know. He was just like, I worship you, my goddess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. All right, so Willow tells Xander to go to Buffy and tell her what they're doing in the hopes of stalling. Giles is not looking too good in the mansion. His head is sagging as Angelus tells him that he can stop the pain. You've been very brave, but it's over. Um, The lighting in this episode is beautiful because you have that painting of cherry blossoms and it's, I think, a Japanese man riding a horse. And it's just like this beautiful scene and you have the way it's lit. And so Giles is backlit, and then you have just the silhouette of Angelus in front of it. And so the juxtaposition of this beautiful, peaceful scene with this torture scene is just very, very eerie. Um, Giles, please, Angelus, just tell me what I need to know. He kneels in front of Giles as the camera pans in while Giles struggles within himself. You feel like he's going to break any minute. And then he says, in order to – Angelus gets closer. I love Angelus's face. He's like, yeah, yeah. To be worthy, you must perform the ritual. And then all of a sudden his face hardens and he spits it out in a tutu. <laughs> I just love that even when Giles was going through the most pain that we've ever experienced, like seen him experience, he is still like Giles, like literally yeah. just the most strong-willed like British person ever. He's using his powers of um, tuning out that he uses quite frequently when Xander's talking in the library on Angelus. So I'm sure he's like a finely tuned machine at this point. He knows how to do that. Um, My favorite piece of trivia for this episode is apparently David Boreanaz is incredibly clumsy. And during this scene, he used to kneel down while he's in front of Giles or Tony Head. And he kept falling over while he was crouching down because he couldn't keep his balance so much so that they kept laughing while filming the scene. And Tony Head had like his mouth full of peppers. <laughs> he kept having to take new ones because David Boreanaz was so clumsy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'd be like, come on, God. like, dude. I'm like, my mouth is burning. I'm supposed to be crying. Yeah, right. Like, can we not be laughing? Right. And then he's supposed to say in a tutu without, you know, cracking yeah. up. And David's over there falling over. So Angelus stands up. All right. Someone get the chainsaw. <laughs> and then that beautiful shot of Angelus's silhouette in front of the painting. Spike rolls in. Love how nobody cares where he is. Like, this guy's been gone for hours. And, like, nobody nobody notices. Like, did he stash his wheelchair? Did he just leave it mm-hmm. out? Like, I want to know what happened. He, like, hid it in a park somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I will say, I think it's so interesting how Spike protects Giles without 
giving himself away, but so also clever. Like, like it's just I love Spike. I think he's so interesting. Like he's such an intelligent character. He's intelligent, but not in a way that we've ever seen before. Because I feel like in School Hard, in Halloween, he was just kind of like seize the moment guy. He wasn't like plan things out and like go through with my plan. And this entire episode, we've seen him actually like make a plan, follow through with it, and then keep his nerve while he's he's dealing with Angelus, the guy who's like supposedly supposed to be like smarter than him and crueler than him. I, I yeah, it's very very clever. <laughs> now now don't let's lose our temper. <laughs> what does Angelus say, Leah? I think this is your favorite line. <laughs> I think he he goes, when did you become – what did he say? When did you become the level-headed one? No, he says, keep out of it, sit and spin. Oh, <laughs> yes. I forgot about this. <laughs> That's a horrible so thing to funny. call someone in a wheelchair. Like, Especially – I think what's a- funnier about it is the fact that it's not even that Angelus had time to like – rehearse that it was literally his initial reaction was to be like keep out of it sit and spins like he just like has like a handful of insults for spike just in his pocket and it's so funny well it's especially funny too because angelus has been like super like passive aggressive in how he's like gone after spike and it's become more and more overt as the season's gone on and now he's just like i don't like you and yep. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> Less passive, more aggressive. <laughs> yes, exactly. He's like, already got Drew. Like, what else do I need? Spike keeps his cool. He says, look, you cut him up. You'll never get your answers. This is Spike playing the long game. Like, good for him. Angelus is super sus. He's like, um, since when did you become so level-headed? Which is fair because that's not typically Spike. Spike, about the time you became pig-headed. He's not wrong. You have your way with him. You'll never get to destroy the world. And I don't fancy spending the next month trying to get librarian out of the carpet. There are other ways. He calls Drusilla in, says, do you want to play a game? Oh, no. (laughs) What else can Drusilla do? She's like the catch-all for everything. All right, library. There's crime scene tape everywhere. The bookshelf's been put back up, and it looks like everything's been cleared, which or at least cleaned. I don't think in a normal crime scene, I think you leave everything the way it was until at least they're done. There's a chalk outline on the floor where Kendra was. Buffy rests her hand on the incense bowl that Willow was using for the spell, which I'd never noted before. And she kind of like pauses for a minute and then pushes it away and grabs Kendra's duffel bag from out from under the table, which I was thought was a really nice symbolic moment of Buffy recognizing once again the angel's not coming back. And kind of like moving on. Snyder comes in. You do know this is a crime scene, don't you? But then you're a criminal. So that pretty much works out. Dude, this whole scene, I'm not even going to lie, had me so confused. I was like, okay, does he know that she's a slayer? Or does he just think she's somehow involved with everything? Like, it just, it's a very interesting, like, interaction. But I'm also like left wanting more. Uh, Yeah, and I think that's the point. I think you're not really supposed to know. Buffy, you know I didn't do it. The police will figure it out. Snyder, in case you hadn't noticed, the police in Sunnydale are deeply stupid. (laughs) I love that line. I love how he delivers it, too. (laughs) Which makes sense because people can get away with, like, I don't know. Murder? (laughs) Well, people, there are some 
ideas of different worlds or like you know how they'll try to have superheroes in like modern times but change absolutely nothing you're like how does this work you know like you can make it a different type of world and change some like rules and how people live to make it more believable and sometimes they just refuse to do that and so you're like this is current modern times how are you guys getting away with this? But Sunnydale yeah. has like monsters and demons. And so like, therefore, the law for people is way different. So it w- makes way more sense people get away with a lot more just because like the police isn't like the high up lawmaking law makers. I don't want to whatever. It would make sense if the police are under the mayor's payroll versus if they actually are deeply stupid because – we know that people repress, but if it's your actual job to like seek out truth and examine things and fight crime, you would think you'd be you'd be forced to be a little bit more aware than how everybody else is. You can't just live in a fantasy world or a non-fantasy world, I guess. Then he inhales. Oh, the way that Armin Shimmerman just does this whole scene is just brilliant. These are the moments you want to savor. You wish time would stop so that you could live them over and over again. You're expelled. And he says that so quietly and sinisterly. Like, it's it's really creepy. Armin Shimmerman says this about this moment. He says he, that he believes that to a point, Snyder is actually more threatening to the teen characters on the series than the actual vampires. He says he really holds power over their future. If they get expelled from the school, then they'll really be screwed over. They can attack a vampire, but they can't attack a school record. To our younger viewers, that's a real threat. Which I think is cool that he recognizes that and therefore plays his character accordingly. It adds a whole other layer onto um, Principal Snyder. I don't know. I just I, – I absolutely love the man. He's just a brilliant actor and he plays Snyder so well. So Buffy doesn't respond. Just looks down. Pulls out her sword. <laughs> Snyder's eyes widen a bit before he looks at Buffy. You never ever got a single date in high school, did you? He's like, what? Your point being? Which <laughs> I love that word. He word doesn't age. even disagree. He's just like, your point being. Yeah. As, it, as, if he's, as if he's known this this entire time. So he's like, I know. Your point is. <laughs> yeah, it definitely hit a nerve. He looked a little rattled. <laughs> But also the your point being, and then she walks by him with her very big point. Like, I just love the word choice. Mm -hmm. It's very funny. It was like a pun without saying anything. Snyder immediately pulls out his phone. I always forget about this. It's Snyder. Tell the mayor I have good news. What? What is going on with the mayor? Like, I need to know. (laughs) All right. Maybe next season. Mansion. Giles looks rough. We see the same nails that sliced Kendra's neck using a cloth to gently dab at his forehead wound as Drew asks if it's better. The way that they shoot it is fantastic. It's a close-up of Giles's face, and the first thing we see of Drusilla is her nails. And we all saw a close-up of her nails when she was attacking Drusilla or attacking Kendra, so it adds a whole other layer of fear on top of this scary moment. I noted that, too, that they chose to highlight the nails. Yep, the stick-ons, the press-ons. When Giles doesn't answer, Drusilla puts her hands on his head while saying, let's see what's inside. She gasps after a moment, saying, of course, before doing the same thing she did with Kendra, having Giles look at her while saying, be in me, see with your heart. She puts her hands over his eyes, and we have that wonderful transition of the back of Giles's head so that as Jenny is revealed, 
to Giles, it's also revealed to us as the audience, which is, oh man, this this scene is rough. This is a really rough scene. Giles, Jenny, I thought I'd lost you. <laughs> Giles keeps a lot buried deep down inside. And so when we have rare moments like this, where we're kind of able to see what he's thinking, it just, it absolutely guts you. It makes sense that Giles has been mourning more in private. And I think you can see that. And I like that we haven't seen a ton of that just because I feel like we wouldn't. I feel like his anger and his kind of death wish and passion makes a lot of sense because he's like losing control. And then you see him kind of snap out of it and be like, you know what? I need to be this. I need to be that. And then he kind of mourns in private. But like, I don't know. The scene always just like hurts me just because it's like there's like hope in his eyes. There's relief. There's like pain there there's a lot that's going on in his performance and in jaws's character and so it's it's just sad to see him be like a little bit relentful of his i don't know of kind of just holding it together it's just a little sad yeah and it's especially sad because in i only have eyes for you i mean that was the episode that giles has to let jenny go so at this point he's fully let jenny go um and I think he's forgiven himself for any any guilt maybe that he had over Jenny's death. I don't know if he had any, but sometimes, you know, we, we don't always rationalize things well when a loved one dies. But he's very clearly, like, come to terms with her passing. And so it's really, really hard to go back to, oh, she's back. I thought she was gone. And then he has to lose her all over again. It's very, this scene is very, very similar to the end scene with Angel and Buffy. Well, and I think that Giles puts on such a front for Buffy because he sees how strong she is. So he wants to be strong for her. And so I think that we, in, when he, we get him alone, we really see his vulnerability because he doesn't have to be strong for anyone. Jenny slash Drew, I'll never leave you. The music that is playing is Remembering Jenny's, the same song that played in Passion and every time we think about Jenny, but it's played very differently. It's on a wind instrument this time and it's made to be very dreamlike. Like the whole, it is just gorgeous. The camera also slowly tilts back and forth, almost like we're on a ship, which again gives us the feel of it being a dream. It's it's beautiful. Giles's first thought is we have to get out of here. Jenny runs her hands down his face. Giles says, it can't be you. Jenny asks if he told Angel about the ritual, and Giles says they have to get him away from Akathla. Jenny asks if he's close to figuring it out, and to Giles's credit, he still tries to get free, says, I'll tell you later. Like this guy. It took a while to get him to crack. Jenny, tell me what to do. And he hesitates. You could tell he doesn't quite trust her. And she says, it's all right, which is very, very similar to Buffy's. Don't worry about it. Like Jenny and Buffy kind of mirror each other and that they both know something that the other person doesn't know. And they're trying to make them rest easy in that. Giles still doesn't look like he trusts her. So then she tries kind of like a seduction. She says, we'll have everything we never got to have, never got to feel, which is incredibly violating because Drusilla, as Jenny knows all of this because she was inside of Giles's head. So she knows Giles and Jenny never got the chance to ever have sex, even though they were planning on it. She knows all these things, which – is really an interesting 
layer on top of all this. So not only is Giles being tortured physically, he's being tortured emotionally and mentally, and he's also being violated too, which is just really sad. So Giles spills that Angel has to get away from Akathla, that he's the key as it's his blood that opens the portal. She kisses him, and then suddenly we cut to the real world and see Drusilla kissing Giles, which is gross. I don't like that. <laughs> Spike looks smugly at Angel as Angelus figures out that it's his blood. I am the key that will open up the door. My blood, my life, which is – this is very important because it's his blood and his life, which is what will close it. Okay, kill him, Spike. But what if he's lying? Yeah, good point. All right, don't kill him. Angelus just seems so impulsive. It's like they've swapped places from how they were earlier on in the season. It's really interesting. I also don't think that it's him being impulsive. I think it's him being cocky. I think he's Ooh, like, oh, like yeah. I already already know what to do. So sure, keep him alive, I guess. But he's like so – like he really just doesn't think he's going to be defeated. Mm, I think you're right, Leah. Um, and then Angelus is like, hey, you know, I like this. Us being buddies, you watching my back, just like old times. Poor Giles. The moment that he, like, wakes up and realizes what happens, like, worst feeling in the world. All right, so at Giles' house, Whistler's still scrounging around for booze. Buffy asks what he means about the sword not being enough. And he's like, raiding an Englishman's fridge is like dating a nun. You're never going to get the good stuff. I was like, oh, that's what that means. I've never thought about it before. <laughs> I don't – I always forget Whistler's in this episode because I just – Yeah. I don't know. So like when you just mentioned that, I was like, I don't think I've ever comprehended much of what he said because I just kind of feel like he's just in this episode to like kind of like push Buffy into like where she's supposed to be because I'm like, why are you even here? He doesn't really even push Buffy. No. Like, she kind of does it anyway. I think the only information that she needs to know that he gives her is it's the blood. Like, once he opens the portal. But like, that's the how only thing. Do, how does Whistler know? Do we even find – like, I just – That is the question like, we so all want to know. In this episode. Yeah. 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 How does Whistler know anything? He tells her Angel's the key. His blood will open the door to hell. That only Angel's blood will close it. One blow will send them both back to hell, but I strongly suggest that you get there before that happens. The faster you kill Angel, the easier it's going to be for you. Buffy, don't worry about me. It's all in the line here, kid. I feel like he's kind of irritating. He's just saying things that Buffy doesn't need to hear. Like, she knows this. Like, I don't know. And we've seen that he's watched her be called, too. Like, it just – it. he's a little irritating. She says, I can deal. I got nothing left to lose. She leaves and Whistler ominously says, wrong kid, you got one more thing. And I wrote, how much does this dude know? Like, why doesn't he tell her that? Like, he's telling her, hey, get there before he opens the portal. But then he's like making it seem like he knows that she's not actually going to be able to do that. I feel like that would have been a really great thing for Buffy to know. And it also, okay, so this might be a... um unpopular opinion but i think that he should be held just as much accountable as xander for not telling buffy about angel Fair. possibly getting his soul back i mean everybody yeah. gets on xander but i mean i think we get on xander because xander is her friend whereas like whistler's this random guy but like i agree like it's it's so messed up like he saw her and he was like you still have one more thing to lose. Like, you weren't going to tell her <laughs> I'm that? not going to tell you. Yeah, I know, right? I'm like, go away, dude. <laughs> you were cool in the in the first episode you were in, but now you're just redundant. 
All right, sunrise, Buffy's on her way to the mansion. Joss's stage directions for the script for this episode read, yes, it's sunrise, sue me. So apparently, according to the Watcher's Diaries, sunrises and sunsets are almost impossible to film because they are so brief and difficult to schedule, much less capture on film. Um, the exterior shots of the mansion, the crew had to get special permission to drive a 6,000-pound crane on the street, and all filming had to be wrapped by 10 a.m., which is the taillights at 10 rule. That's, that is hard, especially if you have, like, sunrise. You have a very short amount of time in which to film everything. Xander surprises Buffy. The cavalry's here. The cavalry's a frightened guy with a rock, but it's here. <laughs> Buffy pulls out a stake, gives it to him. You're not here to fight. Tells him to get Giles out, then get to safety. I'm curious what Buffy's plan was if Xander hadn't showed up. Was she just going to fight everybody, then get Giles out? I just, I don't know. I don't think she had much of a plan. I think it was go in there, try and stop him, save it, whoever she could. But I honestly, I think that as bad as it is to say, I think her first priority was stopping Angel, not saving Giles. Xander, Willow, uh, and then he pauses. <sighs> she told me to tell you. Long pause. And okay, I remember distinctly the first time that I watched this episode, as soon as he paused, I was like, he's not going to tell her. He's not going to tell her. Like, it just kick his ass. And oh, oh my gosh. All right, let's go. Let's talk about this. Was Listen, Xander right? Was Xander wrong? <laughs> I just like, there is not one part of me that agrees with this decision. One part. Like, <laughs> yes, of course you cannot like Angel. Yes, of course you can have your disagreements of that. But A, Ange Angel and Angelus are not the same person. Like, Angel has no will over what Angelus does. So it's unfair to hold Angel accountable for Angelus's actions. Not to mention, you are dooming Buffy to kill the person she loves. And it's also way harder for her because had she known that they were trying to turn Angel into Angelus or Angelus into Angel, she would have stalled more, which would have saved angel's life and her trauma like it's just like there is no way i'm sorry guys i try to be impartial but there's no way of spitting this in my eyes where like xander does not come out a jealous douchebag i've heard the the argument that he said this i'm not saying i agree this but it's it's an interesting idea that he said this to kind of give her motivation to go and like kill him but here's the thing he should have, he could still do this by saying, hey, there's a slight possibility that his soul might be restored, but that doesn't mean that you should relent and not fight and try to kill him if you have the chance. He could say that and she'd be like, okay, yeah. Like Buffy has proven herself, especially when it comes to Angelus the past couple episodes, that if the opportunity came where it was like, she could kill him and she had to because he's like Angelus. She would take it. I don't think that she's really expecting that the spell is really going to work. I think she's hoping, but I think that if she had the opportunity, she would kill him. And so I can see how people would think that, but it's like he still needs to tell her though. 
Like, he still needs to be like, hey, like, you still need to take every opportunity to kill him because he's a threat. But just so you know, there's a slight possibility he might be Angel again. But also, I mean, great point, Tappy. But also on top of that, it's like, ultimately, Buffy is the Slayer. It falls on her shoulders about, like, she's literally judge, jury, and executioner when it comes to vampires. Like, she is literally chosen to be the person who determines what happens. And so the nerve of Xander to withhold information because he thinks that his judgment is better than hers is so arrogant. Like, Buffy has the literal weight of the world on her shoulders at all times. You really think that she's going to prioritize, like, her love over, like, the whole world? She has shown that she chooses the world. Like, ugh, it's so annoying. Yeah. Yep, it is. So I'm going to play devil a- devil's advocate for a minute, and then I will talk about what I really think. <laughs> so it is altogether possible, what Tabby said, that Xander came up with the intention to tell Buffy what Willow said, and then saw that she was in battle mode, and then him saying, hey, Willow said she's going to do the spell – could pull her out of it. The thing is, is that Xander saw what happened in in the episode prior when Buffy went with the intention to just stall Angel while Willow did the spell and how badly it went. And also the fact that Buffy like wasn't even really trying as hard as she could. I mean, Angel mentions that. He's like, it doesn't feel like your heart's in it. And it could be that Buffy just didn't give it her all because she knew that Angel could quite possibly be cured. There's that possibility. Xander also doesn't seem to think that Willow can pull off the spell because of the first attempt. If Buffy hesitates, she could die and slash or the world could go to hell. The problem is we're not sure of his motivations and is it even his place to not tell Buffy? It's an ethical dilemma because it probably wasn't his call, yet it turned out fine in the sense that the world and Buffy didn't die, yet Buffy was extremely emotionally scarred by it given by the fact that she completely leaves Sunnydale. So Passion of the Nerd sums it up brilliantly. He says, simply, Willow has made her own decision that she wants to try the spell again, and she has asked Xander to tell Buffy. Buffy trusts Xander and always expects the truth from him, especially given information that might affect her tactics in battle. And Xander decides that he knows better than either of them. Nobody knew how the battle would play out, and Xander's decision actually limited Buffy's options. Whatever his motivations for that decision, that is very simply wrong. He cannot elect himself commander. And I was like, go off. (laughs) If you guys get the chance, definitely watch Passion of the Nerds becoming part two analysis because it gave me goosebumps. It was so good. But I 100% agree. Willow made a decision. Buffy made a decision. And Xander's over there trying to control that decision on both ends. And it's just, it's not right. And it actually like inhibits Buffy, who is the leader of the group. And he could have he could have harmed Buffy physically. Instead, he ended up harming her emotionally, and neither one's okay. So glad we have um, wrapped that up. I think, you know, I just wrapped up a 23-year-long uh, argument with that. You know, that's as simple as it is. <laughs> Not really. But we're seriously curious. If any of you guys have um, 
any input into this. If you have a viewpoint that you feel like is different or unique, definitely let us know because I'm I'm always interested in what people have to say specifically about this scene. All right, Mansion, Angelus is once again praying to a Cathla, only this time we see it from a Cathla's point of view versus from Angelus's in the last episode. Everyone's there. Drew's holding her doll again, which I thought was really cute. Angelus is looking great in his leather pants as always. <laughs> Chants in Latin. In the hospital, um, we get this lovely aerial shot of Willow, Oz, and Cordelia prepping for their spell. I just love how Joss ties in different um, moments going on. You have both the spells starting at the same time. It's just so cool. Like Buffy finds out about the blood the same time Angelus finds out about the blood. Like it's all, that's what makes this episode flow so well is everything is happening at the same time. And you saw that with Becoming Part One as you had the flashbacks happening with Angelus over here. Buffy was finding out about the curse over here. So it's just, just, he he does a very good job with a big ensemble of people and and the timing wise of the episode. Willow, are we ready? Cordy is burning the incense. Oz is reading out of the spell book and Willow is doing the actual spell and channeling the magics. In the mansion, Drusilla has the doll in one hand, knife in the other, hands the knife to Angelus who slices his hand. Now, Akatha, you will be free and so will we all, which is lending credence to my theory that Angelus just wants to be free of Buffy and any of hope of salvation. Buffy enters quietly. This part doesn't make sense. Beheads a very bored looking vampire who's about ready to go to hell for the first time. And he looks like tired and he probably can't see out of his peripheral vision because of his bumpy forehead <laughs> because she's like right there. And he like is just like, okay, yeah, what, are we, what is this portal going to open? Um, beheads him. Drusilla looks over startled. Well, Angelus just looks so done with all. He's, he's annoyed. Like, he's like, again. Ugh. And I love how she's the one who's like, hello, lover. I'm like, yes, yes. Buffy. Spin Take his words. Power. Spin his yes. words. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and he's like, I don't have time for you. <laughs> she says, you don't have a lot of time left. Coming on kind of strong, don't you think? He's so petty. So petty. I'm not Buffy, and these zingers hurt me. Like the whole coming on kind of strong, don't you think? Like, I just don't know how Buffy mentally is strong enough. She's got balls of steel. She really does. You're playing some deep odds here. Do you really think you can take us all on, Buffy? No, I don't. We slowly see Spike so, rise oh, behind my, Angelus. One of my favorite parts of the whole episode. I like get so hyped every time. Sick. He goes <laughs> ham on him. He's angry. <laughs> Yeah, you know he's been holding this back for episodes. It's very satisfying because Angelus is a jerk, but we've also seen Spike kind of be thrown under the bus like the entire season. So it's really well, rewarding. The first time I watched this episode, I was like, why didn't he just stake him? But this makes absolute sense because he just wants to beat the absolute crap out of him because he wants to get his anger out. Like he doesn't want to just do like he's him and Angelus are the same where it's like, why just stake somebody or kill someone immediately when like. You know, you can have a little bit of fun or like there's no like revenge and just being like, ah, pop. All right. He's dusted. It's like, no, I want to like hurt him first because I'm mad. And so like him like beating him with like um a pipe or like something. A poker. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. makes absolute sense because like watching it again, you're like, oh, OK. But then the first time you're like, why didn't he just dust him? You know? Yeah. And then you hear like Drew like winding up. She's like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> 
nowhere. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it also lends a little bit of credence to my theory, too, that Spike doesn't actually care if the world ends, too. I think if he really cared, he also would have staked Angelus. I think it was more just like, I just want Drusilla back. But I love the little, like, bounce that – Spike does this. He's like hitting him. He like has this little like cocky like swagger in between every hit. Oh, it's the best. Buffy fights a lackey demon who takes her down, but she gets up with a fancy scissor kick. I really, I really, really love the stunts that happen in this fight. Oh, it's just very special. This is definitely the most like action we've seen in the show. Think so? Yeah. I think it might it might quite possibly might be the longest fight there's been yet. I think maybe the only yeah. other one I can think of is in What's My Line Part 2 when there's that big showdown to save Angel. But there is a lot going on here. Well, there's multiple different types of fighting going on. I think this one is just like focused on Angel and Buffy. And there's like many, many different um, types of fighting that they have in this fight scene, which makes it yes. so fun to watch. Yes. Yeah. It switches up. Yeah. yeah. It's it's very emotional. <laughs> Before Drusilla comes flying in, Spike adjusts to his other hand because it's like his hand got tired and then he moves over to the other one. He's like, painful, isn't it? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Xander runs in, delivers a punch to the vamp Buffy was fighting before taking off to find Giles. Spike and Drew are on their feet facing off. I don't want to hurt you, baby. Drew's answer is to grab him by the throat, just like with Kendra. She slams him into the wall. He knocks her hand off immediately before taking her out with one blow. Doesn't mean I won't. (laughs) But that's such a Spike thing to do. Be like, I want to be gentle with you, but also I want you to love me. So I don't really care. Yes, Mm -hmm. right? It is. That's true. Or just like at first sounds like, oh, really romantic. But then it's like, no, I want to assert my power. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So much for healthy relationship. Also, I was like, okay, how strong is Spike? Because he took out Drusilla like she was nothing. And Drusilla took out Kendra like she was nothing. And Buffy has easily taken out Spike before. So like, I feel like they did Kendra dirty because we've seen Kendra and Buffy match up. Kendra is much more of her like mind abilities rather than her brute strength. True. But even in the fight right before that, I felt like – Kendra never really even got a solid kick in. Like, Drusilla just kind of brushed her off. So, yeah, I mean, with any TV show and movie, there's always going to be kind of like they have to adjust the fighting based upon what they want to tell. But I feel like they still did Kendra kind of dirty. So according to James Marsters, he says, he realized that Drew is drawn to Angel like an alcoholic is drawn to booze. And for their relationship and her health, he needed to get her the hell out of Sunnydale. There's a lot of jealousy, but there's also a lot of understanding. He's her sire. It makes it easier for Spike to forgive her for going with him since it's a sickness more than an attraction, which I thought was really interesting. At the hospital, Willow rolls the bones and rocks while Oz reads the Latin and we hear the spell begin. Not dead, nor not of the living, as spirits of interinum I call. In the mansion, Xander finds Giles, <laughs> who doesn't believe he's real. Giles, it's a trick. They get inside my head, make me see things I want. <laughs> Xander, then why would they make you see me? <laughs> I love like, how self-aware both of them are mm-hmm. where they're like, yeah, neither of us wants to be here. <laughs> <laughs> or thinks of each yeah. other out of all the people to think of. Yeah, well, and I thought about it and I was like, yeah, Giles is close to Willow. Giles is close to Buffy. Buffy and Willow are close. Willow and Xander are close. He tolerates Xander. Xander Xander and Giles are not close. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Giles, 
you're right. Let's go. <laughs> no hesitation. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> He's immediately snapped back to reality. Oh, no my gosh. No faltering. No question. You'd be like, but maybe. It's like, no, you're absolutely right. You would yeah. never come up with my brain. <laughs> yeah. He's like, there's no way this is a trick. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Honestly, if, if I were... I think this would be way smarter, though, because if I were Drusilla, I'd be like, who is someone in the gang he's not super close to so that he would, without a shadow of a doubt, think this isn't a hallucination? <laughs> it would be Xander. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think Drusilla was also trying to have him. She's a see with your heart. So, you know, she wanted him to be so clouded by grief and, and want. Yeah, no, and, I, I know why. I'm know. just saying it would be like oh, full okay. proof. It would have been funny. Yeah. Could you imagine she's a see with your heart and there's Xander? <laughs> We're all like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Ew, Sarah. I'm sorry. She's like you a teenage boy. I did. Huh? I was not going there. No, Tommy, me up here. No, Tommy was not even close <laughs> to going in that area. You took it there. My mind was so far off that beaten path. I don't. That was more than a hop, skip, and a jump. That was a whole, like, truckload of a difference <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry i take it back uh, i don't want to see that either he's an underage <laughs> student no 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 <laughs> annie sander <laughs> <laughs> i agree i agree okay moving on i love this shot so you have you follow xander and giles as they're trying to get out and as you see them in kind of the background you have drusilla and spike fighting right in front of the camera as it pans over and you see buffy over there fighting the vampire it's just it's really really well done i like how much movement is in this fight scene it's so interesting you could rewind Mm -hmm. and watch so many different Mm -hmm. aspects of it and like see something new each time so Drusilla and Spike are still going at it. Drusilla scratches Spike's face and he looks completely shocked that she would do that and that she just knocks him to the ground. Angelus is back up again looking slightly dazed. Buffy stakes the vamp just as Angelus grabs the sword from Akathla, beginning Akathla's awakening. Drew pauses. Oh, here he comes. And Spike takes the moment to grab her from behind in a chokehold, which yes, 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 we know. Go ahead, Tabby. <laughs> what? Never mind. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. How could she pass out if she's not breath? It's my question. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. How is Angel able to smoke from that hooker that he bit? No, okay. That one is a little bit more like, okay, at least it was You for, could like, just carry and smoke. To, yeah, like. And then just puff it that back one's out. A little bit, but the act, like, the fact that she literally passes out, it's like, come on, you guys. She could have, like. There could have been any other way to put her down. Like, you had, it had to be from, like, lack of air. Really? Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I know. But you know what? This scene is so great that it just doesn't even matter. So the hospital, Willow continues to chant, gods bind him and cast his heart from the evil realm. But she begins to have trouble speaking and looks like every word is costing her energy. The pacing, the way this ramps up is just, oh, it's art. It really is. Real fast, I wanted to talk about the stunt doubles or Yeah, the stunt doubles and the stunt coordinators as we get into the sword fighting portion of the episode. So Jeff Pruitt and Sophia Crawford are the stunt coordinator and the Angel and Buffy stunt doubles in this scene. Um, Jeff Pruitt is the only American stunt coordinator to have belonged to an Asian stunt team specialized in Hong Kong style stunts, which became popular in the 70s with Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan. They're very dangerous stunts that you see in a lot of Kung Fu films. They're very gritty and raw and 
require a lot of falling from high places. At the time, had more than 20 years experience in martial arts combat and directed and edited more than half of each episode for the second season of Power Rangers, which is where he met Sophia. Sophia trained in Hong Kong and was hired by Jeff to do the stunts for the pink Power Ranger on Power Rangers. They worked together for four years before Buffy started. Jeff says this. He says, during the episode phases, Sophia had to walk onto a net and the effects guy had her rigged with 300 pounds of counterweight. I told them that I weigh 150 pounds and normally when we do stunts like this, I just jump down and jerk her straight up. They felt that they had a need for extra weight. They said they had tested it with some dummy weights before and it was okay. So we did it and she shot up. We had the camera up about three, 30 feet in the air and she went past the camera and came out at the top of the net. Then as she was falling, she grabbed hold of the outside of the net and snapped to a halt before she hit the ground and it snapped her neck back. She was okay. She got up and she did it again. We took all the weight out and we did it the right way. After that, that same night, I asked her to marry me. We did so many hard stunts and we're not blasé. Sometimes Sophia and I will fight each other. I have her really kick me, really hit me because we come from that background of a more Hong Kong style fighting. They're not really used to seeing that. So it freaks them out a little bit, but it's our jobs. It seems like normal everyday stuff to us. Isn't that insane? The poor girl. 30 feet. I know, right? It goes on to say um, that even though the fights are described in the scripts, Jeff doesn't necessarily follow those directions. He says, I find out what the feeling is before, during, and after the fight. Unless there is something specific, some specific prop, or some place a character has to be, then I know that that's where we'll have to end up. But what happens during the whole thing is pretty much up to me. This final fight that we're going to do for season two involves some very specific attitude between Buffy and Angel and how they feel about each other. So that was not as fancy as some of our other fights, but was more emotional. Each fight has a different flavor to it. He said his favorite thing about the show is that it's story driven with the writers in charge, which allows it to be original and different, which I thought was really interesting. And you see that going into this this episode or into the scene with the sword fight. It's very, very emotional. But even like the hits and kicks that they give each other and oh, it's just so good. I thought the choice of the weapon was also very interesting because uh, like a sword or a knife is very personal. It's very like gritty and it's not very clean. Like it's very like mm. and so th- like the fact that they chose like a sword fight instead of like a normal fist fight, I really like it. Like it just comes off as very like personal and like gritty. It's also just classic hero stuff. Even how Angelus is dressed kind of looks like a pirate. He's got a billowy black shirt with the leather pants. Like it's just interesting. It's very much hero versus villain and I love it. His outfit, I love. This is my favorite An- Angel and or Angel's outfit he wears and the entirety really of him good. being Buffy. I think it's so attractive. I just think that loose button-ups on guys that are rolled up and tucked in very loosely is so attractive. It's a 90s look. You know who does that a lot? Chandler from Friends in the first couple seasons. He wears a lot of button-ups and they're very loose and he rolls them up and I think it's such a casual, attractive look on guys and guys don't really do that nowadays. It's very flattering. Mm -hmm. It looks really good. With like the high-waisted like whitewashed jeans from the 90s tucked into it and very loose. I think that is like so attractive. But the leather pants is a good look too. (laughs) Yeah, Angelus in the leather is is a really good look. Yeah. 
All right, so Buffy grabs her sword. We see her and Angela standing in front of a Cathla, swords drawn. You almost made it, Buff. He still doesn't believe she'll kill him. She says it's not over yet. He says, my boy Cathla here is about to wake up. You're going to hell. Save me a seat. Oh, she's got some good lines. They clash swords, and as the camera pans out and up, we can clearly see the stunt doubles. But that it is a testament to how well done this episode is that it just doesn't even matter because you sense the emotion and how even the stunt doubles are fighting and you gather that from um, bu- both Buffy and Angel. Well, I think sometimes I'm like, oh, I, I wish they were like a little bit better at hiding the stunt doubles. But this episode, I actually like when I can see if it's actually David and Sarah or the stunt doubles because I'm like, oh, they did that. Like they actually did that, like yeah. fighting or whatever. And now yeah. a lot of the fighting scenes – David and Sarah try to do themselves. And so I like seeing which ones that they did. Angelus cuts Buffy's arm yet doesn't even pause and continues on. It's shot very well. The quick cuts don't feel like a cheat or like they're trying to avoid showing how crappy the actors can fight, which I don't think they're fighting crappy. But sometimes like movies and shows will do that. You actually believe it and you're so invested in the story even though you can see the stunt doubles. I mean, literally the way that they cut this and edited it is seamless. Even though we're we're jumping back from Sarah and David to Jeff and Sophia, like it is just so well done. And it really feels like they're sword fighting. Like, I can't say that for a lot of movies that have sword fighting. I think that is one stunt that you can kind of tell if you're faking it. And it really doesn't feel like they're doing that here. In the hospital, Willow is continuing to struggle. as She breathes heavily, seemingly unable to continue. Oz and Cordelia are like, are you okay? Suddenly, oh, I love this moment. Willow's head snaps up looks directly into the camera, then snaps down straight ahead as if she's possessed. The DVD subtitles say that she speaks Romanian. I think it's Latin, but Romanian does have Latin roots, so maybe it's similar. I don't know, but it's kind of cool to think about the fact that like maybe she's possessed by the old gypsy woman or something while she's saying the spell. I was actually going to ask, what possesses her? Like, is there, is it? We don't know. Okay. Yeah. I don't think we're supposed to know. I think we're just supposed to like know that something possessed her. From what I have know about the show, I'm not giving anything away by saying this, but it's like what the darker the magic, you have to channel different people. And so it becomes a lot more dangerous. That's why people don't want people to get into the dark stuff because it's different than just like, oh, I'm going to wave this inanimate object or whatever. Like, but then it's different if you're allowing the magic to flow through you and allowing someone Mm -hmm. to come into you. That's why I feel Mm -hmm. like it's actually very brilliant. I don't know why people crap on the metaphor of like drugs and or like, um, addiction with magic because it's like there's a very clear difference between like, quote unquote recreational and then like actually allowing it to like succumb into you i think it makes absolute sense well and i mean this goes back to the episode before where giles was like channeling very powerful magics through you opens a door that can't be Mm -hmm. closed and so it's going to be really interesting very clearly they're heading somewhere with willow with this Oz looks disturbed, whispers to Cordy, is this a good thing? <laughs> we have that fantastic pan past Willow staring ahead across the bed while chanting from Oz to Cordelia, hey, speak English. But she continues, 
in the mansion, Buffy is not doing great. She is hit out of the doorway into the courtyard slash garden. She gets back up only to have her sword kicked out from her and then is punched into a fountain. We have a shot of a Catha beginning to rumble and then see that Spike is still choking Drusilla as she passes out. Sorry, baby. I wish there was another way. He lifts her and carries her, pausing her at the doorway of the courtyard, and we see a struggling Buffy leaning up against the wall while Angel advances on her with the sword in his hand. Oh, that shot. Well done. You really get the sense of like how strong and ominous Angelus is going on Prana really frail or not frail, but she just looks very tired, Buffy. It's just, it's beautiful. Spike, God, he's going to kill her. And for a moment, it seems as though he feels for her before he just shrugs <laughs> and then moves on. Oh, James Marsters. <laughs> I know, he right? Great job. charisma. So good. Angelus advances on Buffy. That's everything, huh? No weapons. Buffy looks up from the sword to him, her face in the rising sunlight. No friends, no hope. Her eyes close as she seems to be preparing herself for the final blow. Take all that away and what's left. And it's interesting how we look back and forth from Angelus to Buffy because it's like we're looking or we're, we're right there with Buffy. It's like we're sitting there next to her, which I just love how they shot that. And then when we look up at Angelus, it's like he's talking to us with the sword right at the camera. It's very personal. Yeah. And I think it's a way that Joss is including the audience emotionally in the story and helping them feel everything that Buffy's feeling. It's beautiful. He lunges towards her. With the the sword as if it's coming at us as well. Yes. And for her to say, like, me, you feel empowered with Buffy in this moment. Like, it feels so touching. There's just no other word besides iconic. Yeah. Like, it is just purely iconic. Like, Buffy, we've seen her struggle for the past season. And she's finally here. She's finally made it. And she's finally becoming... The Slayer, like becoming all of that embodies. It is not her profession. It is who she is. Arguably, I'd say this is the moment she becomes Buffy the Vampire Slayer. When she is like, she could have let him kill her. But she said, me. Like, it's like an epiphany moment. Like, And it's more of like a empowered, like, like, I have myself. I'm powerful. I have all these things. Like, yeah, you may have been like the love of my life, but you know what? You're not. Like you're someone completely different and I'm going to win. And I just feel like, I don't know. Like I just, I forget that Prophecy Girl and this are just one season apart. The whole, I don't want to die. There's and so then much me, growth between the two. So yeah. much changes in yeah. one year. Well, it's like that whole thing where it's kind of like, it's easy to die, but it's hard to, like, live for something. And I think this is one of those moments where it's, like, Prophecy Girl, she sacrificed herself, and that's amazing, and that's beautiful, and what courage that takes when you're 16. But to be 17, want to die at this point, your mother's kicked you out, you're banned from school, the love of your life is literally trying to kill you and is gone forever, and to sit there and say, I don't need all of that, I'm going to fight anyways... That is power. Yeah, this is that moment where we've watched Buffy wrestle with her inner demons, her outer demons, and she's fully at peace with who she is now. And like, we've watched her wrestle this entire season with, I want to be a real normal girl. And, but I'm also the slayer and wrestling against that. And this is the, for the first time we see her fully embracing 
both of those things. Um, and it's empowering because she's her strongest when she accepts that side of herself, saying me, I'm me, I'm human and I'm a slayer, you know? And I just, I think that's really beautiful. And it's also too like a callback to um, what's my line part two when her and Kendra are sitting there and um, Kendra says, you're not the only slayer in the world anymore. Like you're not the only one. Like you have a friend, you have a buddy. I mean, the fact that Kendra dies in this episode, last episode, it really just highlights how alone Buffy actually is. But she doesn't need anybody. She's got herself. And she's on her feet. She high kicks him and picks up her sword on the way. Spike and Drew burst out of the garage, speeding away to who knows where. Spike has one hand on the wheel, the other one around Drusilla, who's still out. Spike and Drew leave the way they came and initially came here to get Drusilla better. Everything Spike has done is for her. It really is. He came to Sunnydale to help Drew, and he's leaving Sunnydale to help Drew. Back in the mansion, Angelus comes flying back into the room, but not in the good way. Where Catholic is, Buffy races in after him. She does this incredible stunt where she jumps in, spins, and then clashes her sword as she comes. Oh, it's such a, like, visually, it is so, like, cool to watch because you're like, whoa, this this is Buffy, like, strong. And it's it's just really fun. I think what's crazier about it, too, is, and what makes it more heartbreaking, is, like, we see Buffy at the most – at. The most powerful we've seen her. She's ready. She's determined. She's made up her mind. She's powerful. Mm-hmm. And then it's like like that. It's taken away from her. And she just yep. breaks down at seeing Angel, not Angelus. She nicks his hand and disarms him. He grabs his hand and is on the floor. In the hospital, Willow has become even more forceful in her chanting and is now rattling the hospital tray with her voice deepening in intensity. Buffy kicks Angel in the face, causing him to fall to his knees before a Acatha as he holds his injured hand. Willow seems to command something. We see the orb of Thessala light up as Willow seems to snap out of it and come back to reality. Buffy raises her sword, seemingly to deal the final blow when Angel gasps, causing her to stop and his eyes glow as he doubles over in pain. Ooh, okay. <laughs> the scene just gets me really emotional. And and like we were talking about before, you know, that moment in the garden was when Buffy fully accepts her slayer side. And now she has to sit there and wrestle with her human side all over again. What happens if you're given something back only to have it ripped away from you one more time? Well, I think her being able to do this is because she had that moment earlier. If she didn't, if she was really struck down, I don't think she would have been able to kill him. Like, I really feel like this makes sense based off of where she was just at like a minute ago. All right. I'm going to play this scene because words can't describe the emotion well enough. I think we need to be able to hear it. What's going on? 
yard. I think it made me more emotional listening to it, like hearing the emotion behind it. Yeah, without actually like and with how tender it. it is. Like they're just so sweet on each other. Just like, oh, like the part where he's like, "You're hurt," and her face is like, "Oh, like it's angel." Like, yeah, like like she almost forgot how gentle he was. I know. Yeah, and it it's like all the little things. Like she looks him up and down, and then like asks angel, and then he like says you're hurt and touches her arm and then kind of pulls her into a hug and the moment he hugs her is the moment she realizes mm-hmm. it's actually him the face acting mm-hmm. good grief mm-hmm. when Joss wrote this he wrote very little dialogue like they say very mm-hmm. little and so much is conveyed with their faces like it is seriously especially Sarah there's just the master class in acting like I can't even describe how well she does convey all the myriad of emotions that Buffy feels in such a short span of time. I mean, for you, I mean, for you. uh, It's just so (laughs) sad because it's like you see her relief and then you like, you feel her relief too. You're like, he's back. Like, and then you're like, oh, like you, you see her heartbreak again. Honestly, the shoulder kiss is what does me in every time when he just was like, he's like, oh, everything's so muddled. And then he just like kisses her, her shoulder. And I'm just like, good grief that's the sweetest thing i've ever seen and her she like oh my gosh she's like in tears her eyes are closed she's just feeling that moment and she's got the relief and the joy on her face and yet the moment her eyes open that look of horror and terror on her face and at that same moment there's a tear that comes down her cheek it's just like beautifully shot i just don't even know how the actors do i don't even i don't how do you act how does how does an actor do this this is the i think what's also emotional too is that every time buffy and angels theme has played it's always been the beginning portion and this is the first time it's really played out and you hear the strings you hear like the orchestra behind and you hear it slow down and it has like that little like and then you hear like a cathode open or whatever like it's just it's tragic it's beautiful and i think sorrowful yeah like i think we've only ever heard like the piano part of their theme in the beginning because like usually their tender moments aren't that long because you know buffy doesn't allow for happiness to last very long um and so in this one it's like you really hear their theme really play out yeah we had i want to say it's an oboe i cannot remember um we had that wind instrument playing when they were gonna sleep together but this is the first time we hear the strings and this is the first time we hear the Da, 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 da. Like we've always heard. Sarah, the, the music the major, everyone. Sorry. <laughs> Actually, I have a little note here from the music major. So this is from Music, Sound, and Silence in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. 
says, we are introduced to the Buffy angel theme at the turning point of season two surprise. The episode opens with Buffy's surreal prophetic dream, which moves her to pay an early morning visit to angel. The theme begins at the point when angel kisses her and the rest of the scene consists of the two attempting to control their rising passion. The sweetness and simplicity of the theme not only establishes the sincerity of this relationship, but also tells us how we are supposed to feel about it. The Buffy angel theme encourages us to look upon this romance with the same innocence and naivety with which the 17-year-old Buffy sees it. The theme reoccurs several times throughout the episode, each time at a key point in the development of the relationship, when Angel tells Buffy that he has to leave her, when they say goodbye and he gives her the Clodagh ring, which will become an important development of the relationship. And just before they finally sleep together, the theme thus develops associations not only with Buffy and Angel generally, but also with some of the features specific to their relationship, impediments to their happiness, the ring as a symbol, and the physical consummation of their love with the consequential changes in both characters and the plot lines. Because of the associations that accrue to the theme during its first few appearances, once Angel has lost his soul and the relationship is defunct, it begins to serve a new purpose. At this point, it becomes a symbol of what Buffy has lost, and it also reinforces visual reminders such as the ring. In re-experiencing this music, we remember its previous context and thereby empathize all the more strongly with Buffy. One of the first times that this occurs in the episode that follows their consummation, Innocence, after Buffy realizes what has happened to Angel. The scene takes place in the library with the entire Scooby gang trying to make sense of the situation. The camera pans across the group, finally landing on Buffy, whom we see looking at the ring as we hear the theme once again. While the visual cue alone might suffice to indicate that she is thinking of her relationship with Angel, the music makes our participation more visceral. There is a similar scene later on in Becoming Part 1 when Buffy is talking on the phone to Willow and accidentally uncovers the ring lying in a drawer. As her voice falters and the theme enters, the music lets us feel how difficult it will be to follow through with her resolve to kill Angel. Near the end of Becoming Part 2, Willow, Oz, and Cordelia manage to restore Angel's soul, but Buffy realizes that she must nevertheless kill Angel in order to save the world. The theme here extended and with a grander, more cinematic orchestration than in its previous incarnations, achieves perhaps its greatest power as it draws us back into her feelings of love at the same time that it reminds us that she must sacrifice that which she desires most. Only a theme that has accrued so many prior associations could generate such pathos. And it's right. Music is incredibly important when it comes to stirring up our memory and stirring up feelings. And we like we talked about Sarah and David's face acting, but the music is like the third actor in this scene. It it does so much. I mean, I think we'd still be moved to tears if there was no music, but the music just like makes it that much better. So this this is the moment that the season has led to. And I feel like the moment where Buffy catches the sword and says me is the moment that everybody thinks the season is leading to. And yes, it is in a way. But now that Buffy's accepting of her roles, is she going to allow her heart to dictate what she should do versus her role as a slayer. So this is the ultimate human heart side. And like this, this is the 17 year old girl versus the role as a slayer. It's a, it's the, the moment that Buffy should not, should never have to be placed in that no 17 year old girl should be placed in that no 17 year old girl chooses to be a part of, but Buffy is forced to make a choice. 
We've seen Buffy being torn between her slayer duty and her desire for Angel and a normal human life. When push comes to shove, Buffy chooses her duty over her heart, no matter the cost. She definitively answers the question that we've been asking all season long. Do her affections for Angel distract from her slayer duties? And I think we can say (laughs) with a resounding no that he isn't a distraction, that she will do what it takes at the end of the day, no matter the cost to herself. Um, Passion of the Nerd puts it very well. He says, adult love doesn't require us to be someone other than who we are. Adult love allows us to maintain our authenticity and integrity. Our choices define us, and when we act as though we don't have any, our lives become meaningless. In Halloween, each character was consumed by a specific trait, but Giles retained his ability to choose, and it was he who saved the day. In Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, Xander cast a love spell which removed the freedom of choice from every woman in Sunnydale, and who was it that saw it as an obsession? Giles. Consider Whistler's warning in Giles's apartment when Buffy said she had nothing more to lose. Certainly could have meant her life, but I think the statement foreshadows the final goodbye between Angel and Buffy when she is faced with an impossible choice. To be the slayer or to lose herself completely. He is imploring her to act authentically as her true self, as Buffy once implored Ford in Lie to Me. You have a choice. You don't have a good choice, but you have a choice. While some of this is the result of Angel and Buffy's actions, much of it is simply an indifferent universe. Buffy didn't make Angel a vampire. She didn't ask to be a slayer. She never wanted that responsibility. That is life. And I think he puts it really beautifully when he talks about the fact that this is also adulthood. This is Buffy's like having to make a really adult choice right here. Um, And I love that it's like Buffy is a whole metaphor for adolescence. And although none of us will ever have to make this kind of decision, this kind of choice, um, there are going to be other decisions that we have to make as we get older. Um, And it all goes back to Whistler's monologue in the last episode where he says, you'll see what I mean. You know, what are we puppets? No. And at the end of the day, we aren't defined by what happens to us. We're defined by what we do with what we're given. And I think this moment beautifully illustrates that. All right. So question, you guys. I'm curious. Do you guys remember when you first watched this episode? Do you know what your 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 thoughts and experiences were when you realized that Buffy was going to have to kill Angel, not Angelus? I wish. I, the first time I watched this, I already knew spoilers. So. Same. Ah, Leah. Well, you know who Sorry. told me? You did, Sarah. I know. <laughs> okay, well, here, to be fair, I sound like Leah. Um, when you told me, I remember when you told me the spoilers for this episode, though. So, That's so weird. Well, I I was like in junior high, and I had like we weren't really allowed to watch much growing up. Mm-hmm. It was like basically Disney movies, and then like occasional movies the mom and dad liked that were like. Eh. Maybe we shouldn't have seen that, but they really liked it. So we, we were allowed to watch it. Yeah, I know. Right. We're like, makes Air no Force sense. One, yes. Indiana Jones, Harry Potter. But no. uh, yeah, Little Mermaid. Absolutely not. Um, but um, Sarah was Sarah's like six years older than I am. So she was watching it at this point. And then I remember you coming in and talking to like Hannah about it in the our other sister Hannah. Gosh, I needed someone to talk mm-hmm. to. It was so emotional. And, and I was in the room and then you went on and on and you're like, like and Buffy has this like boyfriend named Angel and Angel's a bad bad guy now and then she has to kill him. And then like I, I remember hearing the whole synopsis of like the season two arc and then being like 
I like knew that about the show for like years. And so um, knowing all of this was kind of like, oh, like I want to see how it happens. Not to say that like it wasn't like sad when I watched it. I'm guessing. I don't remember, honestly, the first time. I don't remember watching. It's funny that you remember me telling it, but you not experiencing it. Yeah. Yeah. I no, I like, I can't even tell you when I had seen the first like three seasons. I couldn't tell you when. I just remember being like, yeah, I've seen it and like having to go back and like watch the rest like years later, but I couldn't tell you when or my reaction to the first three seasons. For me, I genuinely (laughs) thought up until that point where he gets his soul back, I was like, okay, he's going to get his soul. He's going to get his soul. And I remember legitimately getting scared once he pulled the sword out and realizing, oh, crap, a Catholic's opened. And then being like, well, okay, Buffy will find a way. Like, because they always find a way. There's going to be something. And then he gets his soul. I'm like, woohoo. And then realizing – oh, crap, she's going to kill him. Like, I just remember being so angry and immediately going on to season three because I was like, this, this is, this is, this is crap. I can't just stop here. But yeah, is I'm really curious if you guys, listeners out there have a moment in this episode that really stuck out to you, definitely let us know your guys' experiences with this episode in particular. I feel like everyone has such an emotionally visceral moment. It's a lot like um, Innocence or Passion. It was like, where were you when Becoming Part 2 aired? I just, I'm really curious. All right, so we see a Catholic's mouth has opened and a portal has begun to form. Buffy slowly pulls back to look at Angel as he asks what's happening. Her look of love as she gently tries to protect him. Don't worry about it. She runs her hands over his lips, his cheek, his brow, almost like she's trying to memorize the feel and look of him before she has to kill him. She kisses him once more just desperately as we pull out and see the portal has now grown. Like it grew pretty fast. They're both gasping for air as they stop. And then (laughs) forehead to forehead, Buffy tells him she loves him. He responds the same. She tells him to close his eyes. An angel sensing something isn't right yet trusting her obeys. And there's a very, very clear correlation between Darla telling Angel to close his eyes when she sires him and Buffy telling Angel to close his eyes when she's about to kill him. Like Angel ends up dying in both of those situations. It's just very interesting. Buffy, in in very clear agony, can't help herself, kisses him one final time before stepping back and plunging the sword through him. Angel's eyes open in pain. He reaches out for her. Buffy, The hurt and confusion in his eyes are just brutal to watch as the portal takes its dear sweet time to close. And then he's gone. His arms outstretched mirrors Buffy's dream and surprise where he reaches out, which is also a foreshadowing of his death. The look on Buffy's face. She tries so hard to be strong at the very end, and yet she just absolutely crumbles, which you know completely makes sense. And we hear Sarah McLaughlin's full of grace play as Buffy walks home. We see Joyce walking up the stairs in her robe, calling out for Buffy, and then sees that Buffy has all the closets open, her clothes strewn on the bed, and there's a note. And Joyce just breaks down in tears. This is just so sad. I hate, I hate talking about this. Oz is pushing Willow in a wheelchair. Xander has a cast on his hand. We're back at the school now. Giles is limping with his fingers in splints. All right, so the Scooby Gang's clothes in this 
final shot of them at the school are very bright in contrast to the outfits and clothing we've seen for the entire episode, and especially Buffy's outfit in this scene with the <laughs> the overalls of pain. Um, Joss has talked about how he purposefully had Sunnydale be bright versus where the vampires live, and I think that their clothing is um, to highlight that everyone is safe and everyone can move on with their normal lives because of Buffy's sacrifice. I think it's to show that the world has gone on to normal again um, and that Buffy can't. Everyone can move forward. Buffy has been very greatly affected and traumatized by this. So the gang compares notes and realize that none of them have seen Buffy. Oz, well, we know the world didn't end because check it out. <laughs> Giles says that he went back to the mansion and it was empty with Akathla being dormant. And Willow, I think the spell worked. I felt something go through me. Yeah, something went through you. I think Oz and Cordelia can both attest that something happened. I love that out of all of them, Oz is the one person that seems to understand how Buffy's feeling in this moment. He says, um, or Xander says, maybe it wasn't in time. Maybe she had to kill him before the cure worked, which is very irritating. His face. He's just trying he to cover his guilty. own butt. No, I wrote he down. Looks he looks so guilty. guilty. Mm-hmm. He looks really uncomfortable. Oz, then she'd want to be alone. I was like, yeah. Oz gets it. Mm-hmm. He knows. Willow, or maybe Angel was saved and they want to be alone together. Xander looking guilty again. Giles not looking too confident or perhaps thinking about the torture. Like, uh, do I really want Angel to be alive? Perhaps. Cordy, well, she's got to show up sooner or later. We still have school. Willow, yeah, she'll be here in a while. The music starts again, and everyone looks unsure as they head back in, but then we pan out and see that Buffy's actually watching them from across the street. She just looks so just in pain. Just very aloof. Yeah, almost like she's looking at the real world and realizing that she just crossed a point and she can't go back. We see her on a bus leaving Sunnydale as the episode ends. And if you guys watch until the end when the mutant enemy logo comes on, normally the monster goes, grr, arg. But this time it says, oh, I need a hug. <laughs> I know this is one of the only times that it says anything other than grr, arg. And I think that's funny. That's Joss Whedon that says that. And I'm like, Joss, you wrote this. I know. You wrote this. You did this to us. <laughs> but with that, guys, we finished season two. Well Nuts. done. Woo! I'm so proud of us. I can't believe it. And now we get to go into season three. I know. It's my favorite, if you guys could tell. Oh, is it your favorite season? Oh, yeah. I Ah. think I didn't realize it until I rewatched season two. And I was like, yeah, no, for sure. Season three is my favorite. So I'm stoked. Oh, I'm so excited. I... I can't believe it. I can't believe we've done two seasons Mm -hmm. and we have four seasons to go. Oh, we have so much good stuff to talk about. But before we get there, we still have the spoiler section for Becoming Part 1, Becoming Part 2 left to do. Just a reminder to you guys, on August 21st, which I guess is on Saturday for when when this airs, at 11.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, We'll be having our live analysis and you guys are all welcome to join and jump in and talk with us about all your favorite parts of season two and beyond. We're so excited for that. So please, if you can, definitely join us there. Um, And you guys can find us on Instagram at Becoming Buffy Podcast for more information, or you can email us at becomingbuffypodcast at gmail.com. We hope we see you guys there. If not, we will see you guys 
in a couple weeks for our season two analysis as well as for our first episode of season three thanks so much for joining us guys and we will see you next time